This is Hardcore, the podcast, episode one. There's no better way to start this thing off by talking to an old friend who I wrote when I was 16 years old and starting out as a promoter. Chris Wren would take a small idea to put out a 7-inch for a friend's band and turn it into 25 years of hard work and dedication and has helped continue to push hardcore culture in every single direction and also managed to still archive some of the greatest things from the past. It is absolutely an exceptional story and the best way for us to start off. This is not going to be a short listen. This is going to take well over two hours, but you don't talk to somebody who's been at it for 25 years and truncate it down to an hour and a half to make it easy listen. Do it in a half an hour, take it in clips, but the whole story is worth something. It's informative, it's inspirational, and honestly, he bears it all, dead honest, and completely positive, just the way Chris is. So, thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting the first episode. Thanks to Post America Podcast, Broadsheet Breakdown, Hey56 for the insight and the little tips to get me started off. Chris, thank you for coming on the show. I wrote Chris via actual mail, handwritten letter, and over yeah. 20 years ago. And it's a surreal thing to think that we're on the computer communicating like this now. And you are celebrating, unfortunately, through COVID, a major milestone with your record label. And you're going through a bit of a crisis with the current building. And it's just, it, it, it's kind of a flashback how quick all that happened. Well, you, so your letter, you wrote to me in 1997, which is wild. I mean, how old were you in 97? Yeah, I was, I was 16 turning 17, probably. Well, I remember you... Um, you wrote the letter to order, I think, one of my, maybe my second release, and you offered to book our bands, yeah. which was very cool. That was what I was explaining, that at that time, that's how promoters or people like myself could even fathom to talk to bands, was to look at the addresses and write letters. And I wrote letters to anybody because I was really just trying to have bands that I liked come down that weren't really getting shows. And I got very few people that actually wrote back, and a bunch of people called my mom's house had some yep. people send stuff. And then like two, three years later, I got a, a ton of stuff because I had written so much that people, it, like, it took a while to catch on. It was very surreal. Well, one of the things that a lot of listeners might not realize is that back then, phone calls were so expensive. You know, to, to make a long distance phone call, most people couldn't afford it before 5 p.m. I think the prices went down at 5 p.m. and then it got yeah, cheaper absolutely. after like nine. So everything was letters. You know, because it was, what, 32 cents to, to send a letter to somebody. Like, what's the first big music, whether it was a record or a song or something that came by that kind of, like, put you on the path that makes you sit in the chair you're at right now? So this is, I was, I was, I came to hardcore through metal, like a lot of people in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And I, when I was 10 years old, I had braces and every time I went to the orthodontist to deal with my braces they had a punch card and if you had a good visit you got like a, a stamp on it and on your 10th stamp you got a, a gift certificate to go to Uncle Jim's tape shack in my hometown so I went and got my first cassette um, it was Motley Crue girls 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 um, epic yeah and that was my first, this is my own music. Um, I don't even know why it was on my radar, but I got it. 
and through going to, there was a town pharmacy down the street from my house and I would go down there and look at the, the music magazines. And of course I, I started looking for Motley Crue because this was my new favorite band. And then through that would be exposed to other bands. And, you know, I, I think it was probably the, the garage days revisited cassette that came out that, you know, made me hip to the misfits. Um, the, uh, Slayer used to have Dead Kennedys uh, t-shirts and stickers on their guitars. It's actually from that one uh, video on Headbangers Ball. Yeah, well, uh, Headbangers, the, Headbangers, the, go ahead. Was it the War Ensemble uh, video, the, the black and white, and you saw Jeff's guitar. Yes. It had DK, yeah. and that was like, oh, my God, I got to see what these bands are about because they're on his guitar. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, that was a good gateway, um, you know, for a, for a suburban metalhead. Where did you start connecting with the kind of underground music that would lead you to actually want to take your own money in 1996 and put out a record? So I was really, like I said, really into metal in, you know, the, in my early teenage years, skateboarder into heavy metal. Um, through those bands started getting exposed because i mean i remember metal maniacs magazine and rip magazine and some of the stuff that covered metal back then uh also covered a lot of new york hardcore whether it was agnostic front or sick of it all um you know things like bands like nuclear assault there was a lot of crossover uh at the time so it just by looking at these magazines i became exposed to like the chromags and agnostic front and uh, slowly started drifting more towards hardcore because I felt at the time I could relate more to that. You know, there was, you know, when you were a teenage skateboarder, the minor threat discography was a given. Um, so through picking up a few of these things, it just kind of helped me gravitate more towards hardcore and um, seeing that it was so DIY. I mean, people that I knew were putting out their own releases. They were, um, doing their own fanzines. Uh, a kid in my high school had his own distro, literally like a backpack distro. I had a photocopied, you know, double-sided eight and a half by 11 sheet piece of paper that just had all the records that you could buy from him. And he did this, this distro. So I think by being kind of in this beginning stages of this community, as I was, you know, a teenager, kind of getting exposed to it, it just, made me realize that I could be proactive. You know, I, I wasn't in a band, I, I, didn't, I didn't play any instruments. So it, um, I just looked for a way that I could contribute at that time. So that's a huge part of the culture at that time. And uh, distribution was not uh, at the click of the fingers. It was hard to get some music even into hands of people. So it was actually the physical distribution by hands of fans and small other labels and small record labels and even small uh, record stores and tape trading. They got a lot of early music at that time out. And it's crazy to think of kids walking around with backpacks full of records, but the exactly the same situation was around in Philadelphia with a couple different people beyond John, uh, John and very, my friend Bob from Gut Punch Records literally would do the same thing. Would have a school bag or records in the trunk. And before the show, you go see what he had in the trunk. You could yeah. buy a seven inch. And uh, it's kind of crazy because at some point he started selling Mickey's 40s and records in the back of the trunk between shows. Yep. Um, so 
when you connected with Tenfold or some of all fears, I don't know which one. I, I imagine you're more friends with Tenfold because you did a second release for them. What was this? What did you did you did you already know or did you, who did you, was the person you asked? Because I know it's easy to say I want to put a record out, but there's except for zines. Like, what was the way that you actually? Who was the person that you asked? Like, did you just say I'm going to do it and they knew, or did you, who did you ask? Like, hey, by the way, how do I actually press this record? Yeah, so. I was going to school uh, in Vermont at the time. I was two states away from my hometown. Um, felt disconnected. I was in this really small town um, and there wasn't a lot of people that were into hardcore and punk. So I, I ended up meeting a couple guys that had come up in the kind of New Jersey and New York um, scene in the late 80s, early 90s. And they were a couple of years older than I was. So I, I started going to shows with them from Vermont. We'd go to Albany, we'd go down to Boston. And they knew a guy, they actually, you, you know him, Scott Bivin, who did Bloodlink Records. Yeah. Um, he was friends with one of the guy's brothers. They had grown up together. And at the time, I wanted to get more involved. I wanted to do something. Um, I went to high school with the guys that were in Tenfold. And they had recently kicked out their singer. The guitar player wanted, was going to start singing. And, and they wanted to release something new that had him on vocals uh, because the only thing they had was a seven inch with the other guy. Um, and so I offered, I said, Hey, I'll, I'll release it. I didn't have a label at the time. I didn't have, I don't even know if I had a name for, for what bridge nine was going to become, but I was like, that's up my alley at the time I had been making, I don't know, designing demo tape covers for, for friends, uh, making buttons and some t-shirts and stuff. So I was into making things and, I felt like I could try and make a record, but you're right. Like when you're a teenager, you know, the thought of like starting a record label, like that's, that's a big idea. And so for me, it was just like, um, just, I had to ask people, right? Like, so I asked, you know, I, I talked about it with the guys that I had met for my school and they said, Hey, you know, we know this guy, Scott, he does a label. Um, he's put out a bunch of records. You should talk to him. And so they gave me his phone number and I borrowed, one of them had a dialer so that Scott had made. So I used the payphone, you know, at my school and used the dialer for, for listeners that don't know what that is. It was back in the, the 90s. They had these, uh, I guess for traveling salesmen, they would, they would program these dialers with their, um, their phone card numbers, like their 16-digit phone cards. So that way when they had to use a payphone, they didn't have to punch in these codes all the time. So basically they'd press a button it would rattle off the sound of the buttons being pressed and it would allow them to make their call. But somebody had figured out that if you tweak the, the frequency of the, the tone, you can replicate the internal sound that the phone makes. And when, it, when money's inserted, so if you put a, a nickel or a dime or a quarter into the phone, it makes these specific sounds so the phone knows that money's been inserted. So we had a lot of, you know, a lot of kids back then that were involved in the music scene got their hands in these dialers because like I said, phone calls, long distance calls were so expensive that you just couldn't call people, um, especially during the day. Like it got cheaper later at night. So if you had to call somebody about booking a show, you probably did it at 10 o'clock at night. Um, but with these dialers, you could kind of level the playing field and call people at your convenience. So I, I called Scott. He didn't know who I was. I don't think he knew I was calling. It was just like, hey, my friend Mark that knows your brother uh, 
told me to give you a call. Um, I probably sounded, you know, I don't know. I was like, I, I have these friends in a band. I want, I, I want people to hear them. You know, how, how, what do I do? And he was very patient with me. You know, he, I don't know, probably spent 40 minutes on the phone, just kind of listening to me first and then saying, all right, you know, if you want to press a record, go to United Record Pressing in Nashville, Tennessee. You're going to want to ask for Beth. Here's their phone number. Um, you're going to want to get covers printed. You can use this kind of printing place. It doesn't matter where. And, you know, when you're done, uh, call these distributors. Um, just basic, basic info. But at the time, it was so helpful because it just it let you know that it was possible. You know, I think one of the hardest things is for, for somebody that wants to do something but hasn't tried it yet is just being able to wrap their head around knowing that it is feasible. And so that phone call let me realize, like, all right, this is something I can do. You know, uh, you immediately touched on a lot of the basis for the kind of conversations I'm trying to have where because of where we came from in hardcore, everything was done by hands, DIY. And we were always within seven degrees of separation from someone who may have the answer to the question on how do I do something. And with all the information that these kids have their hands on right now and how quickly they can transfer it, there's still so much. It's like we lost an entire two generations of information. People are baffled. Like, how do I get this done? And, and to some degree, there's now people coming as middlemen, like, you don't have to do this. I'll do everything for you. When it's like our entire scene was built by our own hands in a full culture where we taught ourselves these things. Um, to go back to your dialer thing for a second, Robbie Redcheeks, Sean and Dagger were definitely actually salesmen of dialers. So yeah. it was wholesale. Everyone had them at that time. In fact, that's how I started speaking to bands was once I found out about a dialer. And it's still to me like a cultural thing. Like if you know about the dialer, you know about the dialer at that moment in hardcore. So yeah. I loved, I love the moment when you said dialer, because that was, I was 16, 17 years old, Steve Bush, everyone had dialers. Like that's how we would talk to people out of town. It's amazing to see that that's what helped you with your label. So I noticed we talked about your college thing and then you were saying that you're already graphically designed. Was that what you were in school for? Or was that just something that you learned on your own? So I was in school for fine arts. Um, I focused on graphic design. So, you know, the school that I went to was small, didn't really have a defined graphic design program, but they had an Apple computer and, you know, I would go into the office and use it whenever I could possibly get in there just to practice and using programs like Photoshop. Um, I was growing up always the artist drawing from a really young age um, and then designing, you know, different t-shirts and stickers and things like that. So it was just something that I was really interested in from, you know, from like single digit age. Yeah. It definitely seems like it, it lent a lot to you with things that would come into your life later on. So B9 number one, how'd it go? It, it went well. I mean, the, so tenfold, as I said, they were from my hometown. Um, they wanted to, we wanted to do a split seven inch cause they only had a couple of songs so we ended up working with some of all fears who were friends of theirs from Connecticut. Um, they had a new record coming out at the time on a label called East coast empire. Love and that. yeah, great. I mean, uh, that was a defining label at that time. And we, um, 
they wanted to you know, take some, I think a couple of their demo songs or something just to put something out before that. Cause it was going to be months before that was coming out. So we just used it to help build momentum for them. The record comes in your hands. Were you, was it easy to get the distribution? Was it easy or was it just at shows? And then was the move to tenfolds next thing, something that uh, you were already looking at or were you like, Hey, I did this one. How did you, how did you go from, cause there, you know, back then there might've been labels that had two records. How did you yeah. get to that second, third, and fourth release? Well, so it took, it took um, a year to sell them. So it was, a, it was a process. But, you know, I remember the records came in from the pressing plant. Um, we had friends, I think, from Tenfold and a couple of guys from Fast Break, you know, that were another band in Connecticut, uh, come up to my, my house, you know, with my, my parents' house. Uh, it was, you know, the summer. And we just assembled records, had a pizza party. Um, I remember going to uh, Jesse Stanhard's house because he was in Tenfold and we were going through all of his fanzines looking for ads for distributors. So, you know, we, we sent uh, a letter to Vary. We sent a letter to Lumberjack. We sent a letter to, you know, all these random distros that that were in, that were, you know, whoever advertised in, in fanzines in the mid 90s. Um, and from the ones we heard from, they'd say, yeah, send us 10 copies and we'll pay you when, when they sell. Um, and some of those places would, you know, reorder it a couple times. Um, but it was really, uh, it was really like spotty, you know, uh, back then, obviously things happened very slowly. Like right now we get a new record, we can put it online and people start buying it immediately. Back then we would send an advertisement to a fanzine that, either was published once a month or twice a year or whenever they got around to it. And then in the ad, it would say, you know, this is what we have right now, but send us a buck and we'll send you a sticker and a more updated catalog. And I would make these photocopied cut and paste catalogs and update them every few months. And with whatever stickers or t-shirts or records that I was releasing at the time or, or had in, you know, in hand. And then, people would send me the dollar and then I would send them the catalog. And then three weeks later, they'd you know, send me a money order or, or well-hidden cash in an envelope for a t-shirt. And the whole process took, you know, a month. Um, now you can do it in one night, but you know, it, it probably took about a year to, to sell the records. Um, we pressed a thousand copies. Uh, back then there was a lot of trades. So, I would connect with different people in different cities and they would send me 10 copies of their releases and I would send them 10 copies of mine. Um, so it was very, a very kind of an organic word of mouth spread. Were you doing any consignment with local record stores? Cause I, I was one of the things that was another big thing with bands locally and just a way that we would buy things was, you would physically just put records out and say, say, Hey, if we sell them, we'll give you the money. Were you doing that? Or was it only through the distros? Yeah. I mean, it was through distros, but it was also, you know, some of the bigger record stores. Um, I know Newberry comics in, in Boston, everything was consignment back then. So we would just send them copies and, you know, wait for them to sell. It's again, and talking about your graphics in that one ad, which is how I bought that record was the anime straight edge design. Yep. And that first caught me. And then I was like, oh, check this out. And I had read in a zine about some of all fears. And I had been talking to people about how Dave was going to release some of all fears, the EP. 
So I'm like, all right, this is sick. I'm buying this. But I remember, and it's interesting now we're looking at this. There's so many Twitter hardcore kids who are obsessed with anime. And they're like, oh, anime and hardcore. I'm like, man, the first Bridge, Bridge Nine ad I ever saw was an anime guy that said Straight Edge. So, I mean, yeah. we've had it even back then. Well, so I was a, I was a skateboarder, you know, in my late teens, you know, teenage years and early 20s. And at the time, anime was popular with skateboarding. And, you know, there was companies like Hookups that was all anime. Um, so it was just a, an easy thing to put together. Between the times where you're going seven inch by seven inch and you're not putting them out regularly, you eventually moved up to Boston and linked up with American Nightmare? Or was that like you were in school in Boston? Like what brought you to... I mean, I know you did a release with Right Brigade and I know you did, I know Proclamation was a band that I remember seeing uh, a while back and they were an early Bridge Nine band, but what put you into the place where 20 years ago you're releasing the first American Nightmare 7-inch? So the first, you know, the label started in 95, first record came out in 96. Um, you'd asked about the second 7-inch that was yeah. with Tenfold. Um, so Which they, is still something I have and I, it, I won't get rid. I don't have a lot of my records anymore, but I won't get rid of it. I love that record. Well, that, so that record uh, was, they had recorded, you know, three songs, three original songs and a cover um, at Salad Day's studio before they broke up and that was released posthumously. So they, they, I think had made a cassette of it. And I was, I just thought, you know, it'd be cool to, to, to have these out. Right. I didn't want them to just get lost to time. I actually hadn't even heard the songs when I agreed to release it. Just like, oh, if you guys are breaking up, let's take those and we'll, we'll press. I think at the time we only pressed 300 copies. Um, and then we repressed it again because they sold pretty quickly. But, you know, that was the band broke up. Two of the guys went to, you know, they were living in Boston at the time. So they started that band in my eyes uh, as founding members. And a couple of the guys were in Fast Break. Um, you know, Jesse had started Right Brigade maybe around then or maybe shortly after. Um, so they were all still very active, but they just tenfold was done. Um, I graduated from, from college in 98 and didn't know what to do or where to go. Um, I didn't have any jobs lined up or anything. So when I ended up graduating and moving, I, I chose Boston because there was, I think, 12, maybe a dozen kids from my high school and people that were involved in the, the hardcore and punk scene um, from, from Glastonbury, Connecticut. They were all living in Mission Hill in Boston. So it was just a, a place where I knew a bunch of people. And it, just, it was just um, an opportunity to, to, to go someplace where I knew people. Um, American Nightmare didn't happen until, I think it was the fall of 99. So I was living with Tim Kosser and a couple other guys that, that I knew that were just skateboarders that I had actually met on Newberry Street. Uh, just randomly, we're all living together. And when Tenure Fight broke up, um, I was living with Tim. And then uh, Wes ended up moving into the apartment with us as well. And it was one of those things where uh, they had recorded a pretty rough demo, you know, at the time. And I didn't, I mean, I had six records on my label at the time, maybe five, I think, when I agreed to do it. And just said, hey, if you guys want to put out a seven inch, I'll, I'll release it for you. And I was lucky because, you know, Tim had been in 10 yard fight and went to Steve Reddy and said, hey, I have this new band. 
um, which he ended up passing on. You know, I, I don't know if it was because the demo was kind of rough at the, at the time, but um, he, he passed on them, thankfully for me, and I was able to release their first seven inch. That again shows you just a serendipity and timing that happens that makes just things work sometimes. I remember that um, that fall was Edge Day, 99. Yeah. And I remember being up there for that show and just being mind blown by the amount of straight edge people that were from that area. Cause I had only gone up there to club one, two, one shows. And like uh, another time we went up to dysphoria and maybe we played Bill's bar. So I had not yep. seen that kind of, I didn't see that kind of hardcore. And so it was the final mosh. And I was like the following year we went back for the MIIs last show. Yep. And it was the same thing. It was just like, and that's the first time I saw Bane, like Bane had been coming down to Philly, but no one saw them. And I saw Bane, and the whole place was singing. And I'm like, I think that era and that time for where you guys were out was a crazy time for straight edge hardcore up there. So it's like nothing like we had and nothing I'd seen anywhere else. Well, it was, it was a changing of the guard time. I mean, 90, you know, a lot of the, the like 99 tenure fight broke up and 2000 in my eyes broke up. They were the two big straight edge bands at the time in, in Boston. And I remember when, American Nightmare started, they wanted to be the opposite. You know, uh, they, they wanted to, I mean, it was literally just black t-shirts, you know, no references to tenure fight, you know, when it could be avoided. Um, there was kind of this shift and the, the Boston scene, you know, had so many influences. I mean, you had bands like Blood for Blood um, and then In My Eyes and they're, you know, playing shows together. Um, you have these pretty big bands like Tenure Fight and in my eyes at the time break up and then out of their ashes you have American Nightmare you have Panic you know you had uh, the Hope Conspiracy was getting uh, going at the time um, there was kind of this shift and and there was a lot of excitement back then and I also remember at that time uh, Death Wish was getting off the ground Robbie Red Cheeks had his label getting off the ground there was and um, there was a couple of labels that were just kind of, and, and you mentioned uh, Steve Reddy from EBR. I mean, that label was like a powerhouse at the time. Trustkill was starting to become a thing. Victory had already had been like the crown jewel holder at the moment. But you guys kind of came up, as you said, like this was like the new revolution and it was like smaller labels, bands that were not sounding like the bands that were big at the time. And it was kind of like a, a special like um, lightning in a bottle situation for everybody. It was, it was really, you're right. It was really about the timing because a lot of the more established larger labels were kind of, of avoiding some of the newer hardcore bands. You know, they, they were, a few of them were still putting out hardcore bands, but it was, there was a kind of a void. So we were just, I mean, I was just lucky at the time that I, you know, was able to kind of step in and I, I, I was the same as a lot of those labels. I mean, there's, so there was really so many good labels that were putting out a handful of releases um, at a time, you know, in the, in that 2000, 2001, 2002, kind of early 2000s era. Um, and I was just lucky that I was able to do that in Boston uh, with a band like American Nightmare, because before, prior to that, my, the bands I worked with were not touring bands. You know, they played shows locally, but they didn't really do much out of their hometowns or home states. Um, American Nightmare was the first band that was willing to hit the road and I was able to 
put everything I had into them and other bands saw that and wanted that kind of opportunity. One of the things that I guess we can look at in hindsight, now that you are bridge nine, you know, you're not 20 years ago, bridge nine. What is there anything that stops you and makes you think about not missing the American nightmare of this time? the way Steve Reddy kind of was like, I don't know. Like, what do you do now at the label, at the size you're at and the activity level that you guys are at, not missing out on them gems? Like, is it hard for you to do that? Seeing it, how that's basically got you, yeah, you got your start? It, you know what it is? And it's hard and it's, nobody bats a thousand, right? Like you try to connect with these bands that have these organic, just amazing, like the lightning in the bottle um, opportunities. And the reality is it, it gets harder as you get older. You know, when I, when I signed or signed, but like when I put out the American Nightmare records, I was the guy in the van. I was their roadie slash merch guy. I was their roommate. Um, I was just somebody that was in the mix. I was at every show um, and I was traveling on the road with them. And as you get older, you're no longer the guy in the van. You know, so you rely on the bands that you work with to kind of be your A&R people, right? To, so at, in the first generation, it was just me out there. I would go with American Nightmare to Europe and I, I found two bands that we toured with. And I was like, these guys are cool. I'm going to put out their records in the States. So I did that with Sworn In and Reaching Forward. Um, and, you know, I would have... Uh, somebody in, in American Nightmare, would, that would, like Tim would say, hey, every time we go to the Northwest, we play with this band champion and kids go nuts. So we checked them out and ultimately did a couple of records for them. Um, it, it, it's kind of branches out organically. I mean, even you know, when we came to Have Heart, I mean, I was no longer the guy at every show. You know, I was, um, I mean, at the time, almost 30 and it was one of the guys that worked at Bridge Nine that was like, hey, you need to listen to that demo. This band is awesome. And, you know, if not for him, I probably would have missed that, you know, just because I wasn't able to be on top of it like I was 10 years earlier. If I wasn't in a band I, on my own tour, I was in someone's van for the weekend or we were traveling just to see shows. And by the time later on in the later 2000s between work and not touring it became reliance on people like bob wilson greg from the mongoloids and just to keep the ear to what's in the streets because it's yep. like exactly what you said yo i'm not i'm not the kid on the street anymore I, I gotta rely on these people but it's cool that you still are cognizant like hey man th that it's out there because i feel like there's a way that people perceive bridge nine to be like Oh, I can never get on bridge nine and knowing you, as I know you, like your heart's still in it. Like this is a small label, you know, yeah. and, and, and you still treat it so hands-on like you're not sitting there like a fat cat with a cigar going, what are we <laughs> yeah. doing now these days? You know, like yeah, yeah. Still, you're still so fucking hands-on that when people, when people are like, Oh, what do you think? Like, you know, and I'm always like, dude, hit them up. He'll answer it. He'll, maybe you'll answer your email. Like, how do you, how do you keep that? How do you keep that going right now? You know, it's tough, but it's, I don't know, I'm passionate about it. Like, we just did this, I just did this promo that was the Raid the Vault because, you know, we needed to, yeah. to raise some funds. Um, 
I packed every single order. Um, it's funny. Somebody, somebody inquired, somebody asked if, I, if this was the case, but I actually went through and looked up people. I had like a stack of these orders because people were spending a hundred bucks and it was, I was sending test presses and, you know, first pressings of, of everything in these boxes, but it was mystery style. Um, but I wanted people to get stuff that they weren't just going to flip on Discogs. So I went through and, and put sticky notes on every single order that I could that wow. like list off names of bands that these people had bought before. You know, we've got some people that have had ordered once or twice and some people that had ordered 20 times. So, you know, if I have something that's a little more obscure that, you know, might only, you know, be some only like a certain kind of kid might be stoked on it. Um, I wanted to make sure that those records went to those people. So um, I went through, did that, and then packed every single order personally to try and make it so that people would be into it. And thankfully people have been really psyched on them and, and the feedback's been really positive. But, you know, during COVID, it's been very, very back to basics. Um, you know, for the first few, few months, I had nobody else in the office. It was literally myself, my girlfriend who was working remotely and setting up in our, you know, in the office. Um, but for the most part, nobody else came in. Um, Ryan came in um, maybe a month or two in on like Sundays and Wednesday nights when nobody else was here. Um, but for the most part, it was just me packing orders like it was 1998. And, you know, even, even before when I wasn't packing orders in the last couple of years, you know, I would, everything that was like every test press, I cut custom stenciled covers and spray painted them and hand numbered them. And when we would do anything limited edition, I was the one that hand numbered everything. Cause I, it's still a very personal process and I want to have my, my hands on each one. Are you still a person or were you ever a person that was really like, I always say like red cheeks level with the records. I know uh, a lot of people get crazy into so many color variants. Was that something that's a, were you a collector at that level? So th is that infuse what you do with the label? No. So I, I was a record collector and I, I loved colored vinyl and tour pressings and all the little, you know, matrix etchings and all the little details that went into uh, collecting and making records. Um, but starting the label as early as I did, I never had money to, you know, just randomly buy collectible records every dollar that I had went into putting out records myself. So I would have records from people like, you know, like Robbie that I would trade with, you know, um, like Trey at Death Wish and, and Robbie Red Cheeks. You know, we would trade records every time we put out something new. Uh, we'd swap rare variants or test pressings and stuff like that. Um, but that was it for the most part. You know, any money I had just went into putting out records, not collecting them. So because the label was basically paying for itself and that you weren't taking your own payments, what were you doing for money in the early days just so that way the label could stay, stay a track? Yeah. So th that was, I think, one of the things that helped set me apart from some of the more established labels at that time. I mean, they were full-time jobs where they had to earn their keep, right? They had to, you know, invest the money that they were putting into whatever they were releasing and, and hope to earn it back. I mean, that's, that's what a label does. You know, you basically front the money for the bands and, and to, to release, to kind of produce the music and release it and distribute it and market it. Um, but for me, you know, back then it was 
there was several things that kind of had to happen at the same time for Bridge Nine to take off the way it did in the early 2000s. You know, the first part was having a band that was willing to to tour and, and really get out there and be an ambassador for the label. And, and I had that with American Nightmare. Um, the second thing was having the kind of focus and structure to be able to competently release a record. And for me at the time, I had taken a job, you know, in 99, I was working at Tower Records in the basement art department, you know, making window displays. And I knew a guy named Ramam uh, that owned a label called Big Wheel Recreation in Boston at the time was like the label. You know, yeah, like I remember they, seeing them. Yeah, I mean, they, he was he was the, the label of of like the kind of mid to late '90s and early 2000s, and through some of the guerrilla marketing efforts that I had done for my own label, I had been on Rama's radar, and and you know we had a lot of mutual friends, so he gave me an opportunity to work at his label. So I now all of a sudden had somebody that I could. You know, Scott had, Scott Bivin at Bloodlink had kind of given me a little roadmap and said, hey, this is how you release a record. Um, but Rama was the guy that I was able to pick his brain on an almost daily basis about what to do now that you have a band that's willing to tour. You know, I think I made my first one sheet through, you know, with Rama's guidance and um, worked on advertisements and kind of I did my first promotional posters through printers that he used. So it helped give me a little bit of uh, structure and kind of focus on and let me know how to do it correctly. Um, but the biggest piece was, you know, coming up with the money. Um, you know, I was working a, a, a minimum or just barely over minimum wage job at tower records, making probably seven fifty an hour at the time. And how do you, fund a record label or push a band with that after you pay your rent, you know, that you don't. So you need to come up with money. And, you know, when you're teenager, early twenties, banks aren't giving loans to put out punk rock records. Um, I had to figure out a way to, to come up with the cash to, to fund American nightmare. And, you know, as some people know um, at the time I went down to Fenway park and sold Yankee suck bumper stickers to Red Sox fans, you know, in the spring of 2000. And that was a money tree that I just, I mean, it just out of nowhere. I mean, I was, I was making bumper stickers in the nineties and selling them to chain stores like Hot Topic, just subculture stickers. I mean, I remember the first sticker I made, it just said, I love ska with a black and white checkered heart. And I mean, I wasn't really into ska, but I, I recognized that I could sell a lot of those through Hot Topic. And I took those early checks from Hot Topic and put that into the first couple seven inches that I had released. So in 2000, when I went to Fenway, I had friends that did concessions working at Fenway Park. And, you know, the rivalry between the Red Sox and the Yankees was so, so fervent at the time. Um, if you put Yankee suck on anything, people would buy it. And I was already making bumper stickers for a bunch of other things. So I said, you know, I'm going to try that. And, and go down to Fenway and sell these to Red Sox fans. And I made more money the first night that I did that than I did the whole week before at my day job. So now all of a sudden I had, you know, I had a band that was willing to tour. I had uh, 
the kind of focus and structure and, and kind of, um, you know, uh, somebody that I was able to talk to about how to properly push a record. And then I was able to come up with the cash to do it. It's incredible. Again, timing and just background. So it was your art background that kind of gave you the conceptualized, like, Hey, these bumper stickers. And then on top of it, that kind of drive by selling the bumper stickers ties back into the label. Were you doing Yankee? Was that like, cause I'm from Philly obviously. And I remember going up there and seeing them. Was there other stuff that said Yankee sucks first, or were you like the, the pioneer here? So I wasn't the pioneer um, at the time. So in, the, in 1999, there were some guys that we later refer to as the 21ers, just college broke guys that sold Yankee suck t-shirts. Um, they were these navy blue t-shirts and it said uh, Boston across the front and then Yankee suck on the shoulder, like, like it, where the name would go. And then the number 21, which was for Roger Clemens, who had left Boston and gone to the Yankees. And they were absolutely crushing it, you know, selling these t-shirts for 20 bucks a pop um, and, and had no competition. And I remember they were renting a uh, table space in, at a sock store in Kenmore Square, a couple blocks, you know, a couple storefronts down from the rat and just selling these t-shirts. So at the time, you know, I had some friends that worked concessions and, you know, one of them made a, a t-shirt uh, to sell the week of the, the last 10 year fight show. Um, Cause at when 10 year fight broke up, I mean, that was, you know, there was over a thousand people. It was really a kind of a celebration of the band and, Friends of the band made their own merch just to kind of commemorate that show. I made a poster, um, I think in the spring of 99, there was a, a Nike campaign for the Boston Marathon that it basically was a whole collage of black and white photos of, I think, people running. And then there was a spray paint stencil of the Nike swoosh over this, this black and white collage. So... I did something similar where it was a bunch of 10 yard fight photos that Todd Pollock had taken and spray paint stenciled the details of the show. And we used it as uh, like, we, we pasted them up around Boston to promote the show. And then we made you know, the stencil and spray painted them on the sidewalks leading up to the, the show happening. And then I made, I don't know, maybe a few dozen of these posters just to sell the show. And um, a friend of mine at the time made t-shirts that said Yankee suck because he'd seen these guys selling t-shirts and crushing it. And, and, uh, and, and then he, so he, he made these Yankee suck shirts and we were supposed to try and collaborate on a, a, a business idea together over that, that winter. And it, it didn't, it kind of fell apart. He actually ended up um, working with my roommate at the time because they were both poker players. So I said, all right, you know, I'm, I'm going to start making stickers and uh and just went out and sold sold them after red sox games and uh touching back on your guerrilla art thing in the early 2000s ralphie from the mob was a constant on south street in philadelphia and he would tell us about hitting the base he's like i see you all the time you got these flyers back in the day we'd take the meat pace someone would hit the base someone would slap the flyer on and it just stays yep. at me that the entire hardcore scene now would not even think about spending a night out with a bucket, uh, a brush, slapping and putting flyers up. And I'm always like, I always have these ideas. We should do something like this with this hardcore, like the night before the fest. So people are down, they see yep. it, but I'm, everyone looks at me, I'm crazy. But I remember wheat pacing shit 
all of the time as a teenager for friends, whether it was graffiti guys or yep. show flyers. It's great to hear you bring that back because that's another like timeless thing that is kind of getting lost in the sands. So, yeah, I mean, we had to drive. Remember that night? It was it was weeks before the ten-year fight show, so this was in '99. But we had five-gallon bucket of wheat paste and these, you know, five-foot-wide posters that we had had, had uh, printed at a local, you know, like photocopy shop, and then just going up and down throughout Boston, just wheat paste, you know, throwing the paste up on the wall on. Um, you know, slapping the, the poster on, pacing over it, and then just jumping back in the car and moving to the next place. And they, you know, those things were up for, for months. One of the important things that a lot of people don't understand about people like you is that you weren't born with all this information and someone taught you. And in this situation with Rama and Big Wheel, it just, it just fell in your lap that this person could get you to the next level. Did you, is there stuff that you now wish you asked him or did you think you gleaned all the information you can from that person? I mean, there's always things that I probably could have asked, but I, I was in a really good place at the time because it wasn't just Rama. Um, back then we had put together, well, they had put together an office with Big Wheel and uh, Hydrahead Records. So I had, you know, Aaron Turner and Mark Thompson who did Hydrahead that I, I would see every day. And I was able to, I mean, I was the little label that had maybe eight or 10 records out at the time. And Hydrahead had released probably 60 or 70. Big Wheel had probably released 50 or 60 releases. So um, I was just in this you know, office full of people that were super creative, very driven. And it was, that's the difference. You know, when you have, when you have somebody that's a degree of separation away from you that shows you and tells you this is possible you can totally do this that's usually the difference between somebody just with an idea that wants to do it and someone that actually sees it through that time frame where i was doing half-ass shows and i would i had to go to like robbie and go to people and go how do i do better i had my own friends that did our, like to step up to a level you have to go to the person that's at that level and just say where am I wrong? And I was lucky to have Robbie Red Cheeks and later Sean Agnew and then later Brian Dilworth, RIP, who were the same kind of people. Were you in your basement or did you, because you were with these labels, did you eventually slide into like a space for the label and a living space? Or did, how long did it take to get to that point? So through 99, probably early 2000, I was still running the label out of my bedroom. And in, I think spring of 2000, I started working at Big Wheel out of Rama's, had, he had a, a loft apartment. It was a half office, half living space. And I would go to his house, you know, his apartment in Dudley Square in Boston and, and work for him throughout the day. And in 2001, I think it was, he and Aaron from Hydrahead decided that they were, they were all basically running their labels out of their bedrooms, as was I. And they wanted to get an office where they could kind of take their own labels to, to some sort of next level. So they found a basement space in the back of a rehearsal building, you know, below a Domino's Pizza across from Fenway Park and rented it together. They called it Inatech, you know, after the, the you know, office, office space movie and, you know, just basically pooled their resources, you know, because now all of a sudden they only needed one fax line at the time, they didn't have to each have their own. You know, they were able to, you know, have one internet connection. Um, 
we're able to start taking out advertisements together. Because, you know, even though Hydrohead was more metal and Big Wheel was more indie, they were still advertising in a lot of the same magazines. So they would buy a full page ad and split it down the middle and then pay less than had they each gotten their own half pages separately. Um, so it was really a collaborative effort for, for them to pool their resources. And I moved into that office as an employee at first and probably I was there for about a year just working, maybe just under a year and got to the point where bridge nine was just do, started doing too much. You know, in this, in 2000, I, I had three releases and, you know, the big one being the American nightmare single, but in 2001, I had, I think 11 or 12. That, like, was, literally. The, that was the year, I think like it, not that the, and, and the, and the previous, but I think 2001, you literally like hit it hard with like a hammer. Cause it was yeah. like you, what, what was the turning point? Was it just the, the inertia of being in that environment the extra capital coming in from the bumper stickers and avalanche of momentum for you? Yeah. I mean, it was all those things happening at the same time. Um, I mean, ev everything, every dollar I was earning in 2000, I was just basically putting into American nightmare. So they, you know, I made full color promotional posters, took out ads in a bunch of places. Um, we did a bunch of different pressings of the record, uh, which seemed to build a lot of hype around the band and they were playing a lot of shows. So we were able to, you know, I was able to just, show a lot of bands that I was able to put those kind of resources and I guess bells and whistles on their records that a lot of other labels that I, were my peers at the time weren't able to do. So I was just able to kind of, I don't know, kind of do what I think the labels like Equal Vision and uh, Revelation and Victory were doing for, for bigger bands, but I was able to do it for hardcore bands. So almost overnight, I was able to work with whatever band I wanted to. So in, you know, the spring of 2001, I had a triple record release show with American Nightmare, Shark Attack, where we, you know, we, we released their, their originally self-released seven inch. And then we did the vinyl for Peace and Security for Death Red, um, which had been released on CD only the year before on Triple Crown. So we did an LP for them. And it, that kind of just set things in motion. You know, those all came out. And then, I mean, I think by fall, I got to the point where I had, we had eight records come out in October of 2001. So leading up to that, I, I basically told Ram, I said, I, I can't, I don't have the bandwidth anymore. I, I just, I have so many releases that I'm trying to do on my own. Um, I'm going to have to step down from the job that he had given me. And I ended up, just renting my space. So basically, instead of leaving the office, I just started paying those guys rent to stay there. And I moved all of the label stuff that I had, you know, accumulated in my bedroom into the space behind my desk and just started running Bridge Nine out of this collaborative space. When that came out, I booked them on their demo and I had been a fan since that point. And then seeing you guys put that out, I'm like, all right, he's not just going to deal with the, like, the newer cool stuff. Like he's got his ear on everything. And obviously Matt and all the guys from Philly, like seeing Shark Attack on B9 was like, you know, there's not many Philadelphia hardcore bands that get the same kind of elevated uh, recognition. When did you pick up like the carry on stuff and the no warning stuff? Like how did, how did you start linking up with those guys? Was that through AN or was that through yeah. just them coming to you? So I went on American Nightmare's first West Coast tour. 
and that was in December of 2000, I think it was. And um, a few of the shows Carry On played. They had been to the East Coast, but I had missed their show um, when they played in, in the Boston area, I think the year before. And they ended up seeing them at a venue called Jerry's Pizza in you know, Southern California. And it was just nuts. It was this basement show, um, American Nightmare headlined, and Carry On just crushed it. And I remember meeting, you know, hanging out with them in Santa Cruz, maybe I think it was the next show or one of the last shows. And I was like, I would love to do something with you guys. Um, they weren't really on a label on the, you know, uh, from California at the time, uh, which was surprising, but I offered to put out their LP and they ended up coming out in April of 2001 to record with Kurt in, uh, in the Boston area. And at the same time, you're also, you've got your own friends in HopeCon, you got Panic. Do you think at this time, did you start feeling the overwhelm or do you start feeling that the inertia is there and I got to push harder, like because of the energy of the releases that were coming out. Yeah. I mean it, so I, I, I swore that I'd never do that again, put out eight records in one, one month or something, but it was, it was wild. I mean, there was so much going on. I mean, I was the only one at the time back then. I don't even think I had any real help, you know, um, I had a few people here and there, but it wasn't, um, you know, my, uh, my, my girlfriend at the time was, was, was very supportive and helpful. The, um, trying to think, I, I think I had one person that was working part-time that summer, but it was, it was a lot. Um, yeah, it was, it was overwhelming, but it was, it was good. A lot of the things that happen with DIY people is that they're afraid to take the professional steps or touch into the business side of the thing, the tax side of stuff. Where did you get your tutelage to kind of balance the equation? So you didn't have eight releases balancing out and then there's a problem with money because you didn't do the right things. Like how did you get schooled to do the right things to keep the, the, the wheels under the bus, so to speak? So going back to the, the opportunity at Fenway Park, I mean, that, that saved my ass for, and, and, and provided for a lot of opportunities. I, back then, I mean, I still don't really properly budget. You know, I'm, I'm still, you know, kind of ride by the seat of my pants with a lot of things when it comes to the label. Um, unfortunately, that was conditioned because of in the earlier years, I like I had this Fenway Park opportunity where it was, it was just, it was wild. You know, like you could just go out there and, and make 500 bucks, you know, to a thousand dollars, you know, if you hustled hard enough. And I mean, that was, that was two weeks pay, three weeks pay at a day job. And you could do that in a night. So I was, I was spending money on releases probably a little recklessly, you know? I mean, there was, there was things that I, I, I probably, in hindsight, probably would not have done now if, you know, if, if I knowing what I know now. But um, it allowed me to do a lot of really cool things early on. Now, especially when the easy money comes in, you're just like, all right, I could do this. I can make this happen. And so off the running of bridge nine and the bands that you started out, you, you dropped the champion record. And because punishment had played shows with, for Chris Williams in the Northwest, we were hype on them. Well, uh, so a lot of it was one degree of separation, you know, um, carry on had Todd Jones and um, that led to working with terror on their first record. 
uh, at the time, the, you know, the, the lowest of the low EP. Um, the No Warning record you had asked, um, I received a, a copy of their first EP from Ben Cook, and he had a note that said, Todd Jones told me to send this to you. And, you know, if Todd puts, put in a good word for something, I was going to take, a, I was going to listen to it. Um, so each of these bands were, were a degree of separation away. They were bands that either I had toured with or my current bands had toured with and were just uh, friends, really. I mean, the first 50 releases, for the most part, that Bridge Nine had were all interconnected by bands having been tour mates or, or have, having shared members. Where do you think you got to? Was it the... Was it the sick of it all stuff or the slap shot stuff? Where did you get to the point where it wasn't that first degree and you were dealing for the first time with like heroes and people that you were like, holy shit, I can't believe I'm yeah. doing this record. So I was, I mean, I was really lucky at the time to have this. I mean, the Bridge Nine's 32nd release was the Slapshot Greatest Hits CD. It had come out, I think the year before in Europe, hadn't, been released in the US. The band wasn't doing much at the time in the US. They would go to Europe every summer, you know, a couple times a year. Um, but I had uh, someone in the band uh, connect to me through a friend of mine, uh, Chris Rucker, who did a radio show up here in, in the Boston area, had connected me with them. And, and they just said, hey, do you want to do, do something with Slapshot? I was like, holy shit, yeah, of course. I mean, I love Slapshot. So, um, as things were starting to, you know, get a little bit more, uh, you know, busier and, and larger, you know, I was putting out Terror's new album and uh, working with Champion and American Nightmare had, had done so well. Um, I honestly just started uh, reaching out to bands that I was psyched on, like Sick of It All. You know, the, a band that at the time I think was on Fat Records, it was a couple, I felt like a couple degrees separated away from Hardcore. So I want, I just said, Hey, like, I know you guys are on this big, you know, kind of more punk label. Why don't I do a single for you and we'll release a seven inch before your next album. And I ended up doing that with, you know, with, I think that summer it was with sick of it all. We did one with F minus who I think were on Hellcat at the time. And then we did uh, one for American nightmare who, were, who had moved on to equal vision. One of the things I wanted to ask you, because at that time, Lumberjack distribution was a big wheel that was yeah. like spinning a lot of smaller labels. Were you influenced by their pushing towards uh, release cycles and, Hey, we're working with labels. We really like to see X amount or were you still kind of going up to see your pants, releasing them as you chose? Like how, how, did, how did your release cycle started to get more professional and with everything going on at that time with other labels? So I got into Lumberjack through the back door. They distributed Big Wheel and Hydrahead. And when I started working with Lumberjack, I didn't have the, like, I didn't have the track record or the, the, the catalog to merit it. But I had started working for, for uh, both Hydrahead and, and Big Wheel. And it was through Lumberjack. Ultimately, Lumberjack was the one that was paying me to, to work for these labels as, as the marketing person. And, and I, when I say pay, I, I, I mean that very loosely. I, I wasn't actually even getting a paycheck. They were just giving me, I think at the time it was like a thousand dollar credit at the manufacturing plant that they used. So for every month that I worked there, you know, they would cover a thousand bucks with my pressing expenses. Um, but as kind of a, a perk, because I wasn't really getting paid, 
they started, they offered to distribute the American Nightmare record. So that got my foot in the door. And I think the thing that I learned was to try and group releases together. So you'll see back then I started, you know, it wasn't just like one record a month. It was maybe three or four every few months because that way it allowed people to order them together, especially people that ordered vinyl from overseas. You know, it's pretty expensive. Even back then it was still expensive to ship overseas. So if you put out a few records at a time, it was easier to, to kind of collect them all. Andy King from Thorpe Records was a guy from Philadelphia. He had actually moved to Toledo, Ohio and worked at Lumberjack. He started Thorpe Records. Um, I had other friends who had worked for other labels. I actually did something similar to what you did in a basement of Too Damn Hype for Met at the end of the Chord era of Chord Magazine and the Chord 2. So I, I, I understood this distribution thing. And, and what I kept hearing is like, there were labels who were just looking for releases because of the Lumberjack, but I didn't see that with Bridge Nine. It said like you were able to keep the pace and the quality up where some of the other labels who were involved with Lumberjack were kind of like struggling just to make sure they were staying on whatever their, whatever the cycle they had to stay on. How did you manage to do that? Just by just telling them, fuck you, or just you had a path? No. So at the time I, 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 like I I had what three records in 2000, a, a dozen in 2001, you know, 13 in 2002, 14 in 2003. It just, I, I was releasing, between 12 and 20 records a year, I think after that. And it, it just, I got to the point where I was able to work with pretty much whoever I wanted at that time. And so it was just a matter of, you know, there was no shortage of bands that I really wanted to work with. Um, so just trying to find a balance for myself to be able to manage it. But, you know, it was, it was never, it was never uh, a thing where, Lumberjack was telling me to release stuff or, or that I needed to have a certain number of records. It was, it was at my leisure, but um, thankfully I, I had a pretty like steady release schedule. Well, one of the things interesting for people that may not understand is bridge nine was ubiquitous at that time. And when I say ubiquitous was you had a presence at positive numbers from the get go. You had a presence in top topics and I was never really a mall person, but the terror and American Nightmare was the first time you started seeing hardcore at that stage in these t-shirt places. Were you being reached out to or were you just cognizant of the flow that people would eventually want shirts so you started working with uh, like Hot Topic? Well, so at the time, Hot Topic had a hardcore kid working there that I had connected with and he was able to get some of the hardcore bands into Hot Topic which, you know, at the, back then, there, we, we caught some flack for that because Hot Topic was seen as mainstream and, you know, it, it was mall culture or whatever. But for me, I was always aware that I wasn't, you know, nobody's born cool into hardcore and punk. You have to find your way there. And as I mentioned with whether it was Metallica being a gateway band for a suburban metalhead and coming into hardcore and punk, um, it was... I always wanted to have Bridge Nine be somewhat in a way, a place where people that were on that kind of fringe could find it. And so, you know, in 2005, I think we did a, like an exclusive sampler CD, you know, one of those low cost, like 4.99 or 3.99 sampler CDs on the counter at Hot Topic. 
And that, that was a gateway for a lot of people. You know, they, they, they found hardcore and punk through that CD. So we would, you know, we would get flack for advertising and alternative press, you know, and we, we went on the Warp Tour a bunch, you know, um, and had a table at, at Warp Tour. And we were probably like the most kind of hardcore centric uh, brand or label that was, was on that tour during some of those years. But it, for me, it was just offering an alternative. Now, at this stage, you were employee number one. Were you at the stage where you had anything like another employee that was any bit full-time or was this extra hands on deck when you needed something? Yeah, I, we had uh, some friends that would help out here and there, probably in 2001. Um, I, I had, uh, I think, my first employee in 2001. And then 2002 had maybe one or two employees and kept, I mean, it was small. I mean, it was just a couple of us uh, for the most part for the first few years. And it wasn't until I think the, you know, maybe 2004 ish when we were living in, we'd moved to Salem from Boston at that time. And we were, we were sharing an office with death wish. Um, I think we were at the time we were sharing an employee. Uh, we had, both hired our friend Jeff Jock to kind of work for both of us. Um, so that's when things started to expand a little bit. How does it feel to go from being in a, uh, like a bedroom with a couple record boxes to like worried someone's going to call out and you're going to have to uh, ship this record on your own. Like how did you deal with going from passion to profession and how do you balance being Chris, the guy who loves records with, Hey dude, you got to come in and get this shit done. Like, how did you balance that? It's, it's hard. I mean, obviously all the people that I've hired for the most part early on were friends, you know, and that's difficult because you become like you're, you're friends with these people and, and you're kind of their boss. And and that's always a very hard dynamic to to balance. Um, But you want to give opportunities to people that you respect and people that, you know, are your friends with. And so, yeah, it is, it is tough. You know, we, we had, I've, I've had some people that I was friends with early on that, you know, it didn't work out um, work-wise and, you know, it was awkward at the time, but you get over it. Another thing they had, you guys had this big comp early, a little bit right in between the stage with like, I remember, I forget the name of it, but it was like Death Wish, Bridge Nine, Thorpe, and yep. maybe Mort or someone. And I remember that being like, everybody had that. So that was, that was the fighting music. Uh, yeah. Comp fighting with, music comp. Thank you for and, the name. I totally forgot. You know, it, it, a staple of the nineties was the label sampler CD. And in the same spirit of sharing and collaborating in an office with a few other labels uh, at the time, the idea was pitched to release instead of, you know, at the time I, I couldn't have released my own sampler CD. I probably had six bands you know, and three of them were broken up. So it didn't even make sense. So we had been really friendly with Jake and Trey at Death Wish. And the idea was pitched to compile our, our, you know, our rosters and put together a compilation of 15 or 20 songs, something that's a really cool value. I mean, I think that the first one was free. So it was just like, just a way for kids to check out all of our, all of our, our bands. Um, so the first one, the first fighting music compilation came out in 2001, I think it was, and it was Bridge Nine, Death Wish, and Thor. 
recently there was a one scene unity compilation put out through a very small label called from within to some degree. I think some of these kids today have only had label samplers without the individualized compilation. It's great to see the energy of like, Holy shit, there's all these new bands to check out. And I mean, we're dealing with almost 20 years ago. You guys did very something similar. So you spoke on uh, your relationship with Trey and Jake Deathwish, uh, Converge. I mean, at what point did you shift offices and start? Because I remember, I mean, there's a lot that came from that building later on. How did you make the shift from the one building to the other? To go from Boston to Salem. To Salem. So Trey would come. I mean, he was living in the Boston area and would come into the office just to hang out. Um, and I think he would mean to come in there for 20 minutes and we'd spend two hours just shooting the shit about bands and records and whatnot. And um, when I think by early 2001 or 2002, we had uh, Matt Pike move into our office with his new Kenmore agency, um, booking agency. So he was living in Salem and commuting into Boston. And I think in 2002, fall of 2002, his, his first child, his daughter was born. So he didn't want to commute anymore. And we were all, at the time, I think Big Wheel and Hydra had, had moved to the West Coast. So they had, take, they, had, they had left the office from Boston and I was growing at the same rate that they were leaving. So as one would leave, I would just take over their space and then pay the, you know, the rent um, until ultimately I had the whole space. And Matt had just had a child, didn't want to commute into Boston anymore. And so he had asked, you know, we needed a bigger space. We couldn't afford to get something in the Boston area because the rent was too high. I mean, we were in a, a, a windowless basement. So you know, we were able to afford what we had, but it was not a lot of square feet. So in order to grow and expand, we needed to move outside of Boston. And he had worked at a label called Disc years earlier and was familiar with the, the, the office complex that they were in. It was really, it's like huge, like million square foot industrial building in Salem. And so we ended up going up there to, to look at a space that ultimately we would share with Deathwish because they had been working out of a basement in someone's house at the time and wanted to get their own office. So we were able to try and replicate what we were doing with Inatech and Hydrahead and, and Big Wheel, and then take Kenmore Agency, move up to Salem and you know, add Deathwish and kind of do the same thing, pool resources. Well, that's exactly what it's, 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 a, it's a resource pool. It's, it's uh, also like the energy of working with creative people. And then, you know, you would release some kind of hate, which was Max band. And um, Je was Jeff Chalk working for uh, Death Wish at the time too? I know he had a label at some point too. Yeah. So he, well, he did Jock records and, and we, we both, I think, I remember talking with him. Uh, I think it was at Hellfest maybe up in Syracuse. And he was, I believe living in Atlanta and yeah. wanted to move. And we just said, hey, why don't you come work for us collectively? So he ended up moving up to Salem, getting an apartment and working for both Deathwish and Bridge Nine, which was difficult, like trying to manage one employee between two companies. Um, but, you know, it was it was cool. And he was, you know, no, I think 
with Big Wheel and, and Hydrahead, both labels were tired of working in their own apartments and their own basements. And like they, they wanted to be in a place where they could interact more with people. We, we would get together randomly with Death Wish and, and um, share merch tables and go to festivals together uh, before we moved in together. Um, you know, probably at Posi numbers, we would share a table and, you know, it just, we had a lot of the same energy and, and I love talking about records with Trey, you know, when I mean, we would just, we would nerd out about bands and, and stuff. So it was just an opportunity for us to kind of work all together in one space. And, and it's, it's hard not to be inspired when you have that many people that are all really excited about what they're doing. Hellfest had gone from being like a big hall in Syracuse, I think like in 99 and then 2001 two, I mean, 2000, 2001, 2000 was the year they shut it down at the horizons or so many people. Um, yeah. how, how does a label like bridge nine prepare for basically a giant concert at the size it was in 2001 when it was like the first three day, like, was that a hard task for you to get ready for like the avalanche of merch sales that would be with like one of the biggest concerts at that time? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I've been going to Posse numbers since, uh, one, 99 or something. Yeah. One, one of the first ones. And, um, so I had kind of seen it organically grow and, um, yeah, I mean, it was just a, a fun long weekend. You know, we would make our limited records and, you know, print t-shirts and, 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 and drive down together either with, you know, like the guys from death wish or, or whoever at the time and, and just hang out because back again, back then I was one of the guys in the van. So it was, it wasn't a job. It wasn't like an obligation. It was, it was seeing people and hanging out. I think in 2002 it was, uh, we were talking about Slapshot. I think they actually played the positive numbers 2002. And it was just kind of crazy to see that late, that small fest grow to be like, Holy shit. It's like Slapshot. It's integrity. And I remember oh, yeah, that, guys, was, that was 2003. Oh, it was 2003. Okay. Yeah. I remember seeing them kind of grow to being like, well, from like, obviously like a bridge nine focus fest where like, uh, no warning gets on stage and Ben Cook's like the biggest thing, Death Threats playing, American Nightmare. And then it's like, holy shit, you got some of the older bands. And then juxtapose that with you guys are at Hellfest. <laughs> There's an entire different world with Trust Kill and all those bands and the metal stuff. Um, it, it was a crazy time. And, and you guys managed to balance that well by having, because um, obviously Terror was still with you guys, but about to go to Trust Kill. I think, didn't you do the vinyl anyway, even though they did the record or they did? The yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is where I was getting to. So as the hardcore scene is growing into this more metal, bigger thing to some degree with Hellfest, but Posse numbers are staying in there. How does Chris Bridge nine manage to still be a hardcore label, but manage the difficult aspects of some of the business negotiations where you're talking to trust kill and you're like, Hey, I still want to do the LP. Like, were you still depending on someone or asking questions of people, or were you kind of confident that you could handle some of these negotiations? For, for better, for worse, most of it was just me, you know, doing it on my own. Um, you know, it, it, it was a lot of it was just trial and error, you know, and, but a lot of these people were people that I, I had come up with and, and, and were, were friends. Um, yeah. So it was, it was basically the personal relationships that helped you get through it. Yeah. Okay. 
it always seems to me that the presentation of a label is that you start getting to the point where a label is supposed to sell records to make money. But I mean, looking at your track record, you've managed to both be successful and stay true to it. How did you balance the next run of bands as American Nightmare became Give Up the Ghost and kind of imploded and Panic stopped playing? Like, how did you manage the next wave of bands and stay in the, in, in the fold, so to speak? So let's see. I mean, we, we had American Nightmare in 2001 going, you know, 2000 to 2001. Um, 2002, 2003 was champion, no warning, terror. Yeah, Hulk um, there were so many of them, Panic. Yeah. There were so many yeah. of them. And, and some of those were just seven inches, but yeah, they but were, you know, like, like the Shark Attack record, but they were, I mean, important chapters, you know, um, and exciting records. We, we, I was just fortunate that as, as one band, because, I mean, I was still a small label, and I was, you know, losing bands because they were just going up the food chain, which was fine because, I mean, I was doing this label literally out of my bedroom. So when the band had an opportunity to move to Equal Vision, um, I mean, even with, you know, Trustkill, they were a few steps ahead of me. So their their heyday was more in the 90s, I think, earlier on than I was. So they, they had distribution. They had, um, you know, everything in place as I was starting to learn it. So um, I was just thankful that I was able to find the next band, right? So as Terror moved on, then it was, you know, uh, probably shortly after Half Heart. And, you know, as Half Heart moved on, you know, broke up, I guess, you know, in 2009, it was bands like Ceremony or, you know, Polar Bear Club. And uh, one of the things that we got to talk about and it's not a disparaging way. I feel like Bridge Nine, Death Wish, the labels we spoke about were kind of the end of the Victory era. You know, Victory had put focus into these bigger things that were beyond it. Do you feel like you benefited from, or you were never cognizant of, oh, you know, oh, Victory was trying to get any of your bands besides maybe Terror because he had Buried Alive, right? At that point. Is that, am I correct? Yeah. I mean, again, most like we didn't really have much crossover, I think, at the time of Victory. Um, which is a more, benefit, right? More, yeah, more equal vision. I think, you know, having, you know, and it went both ways. I mean, you know, we did the tenured fight home video in this, you know, the fall of 2000. Yeah. Didn't you guys um, sell that at edge day or something like that? Did, I remember. Uh, I don't think we sold an edge day because I don't know if it was ready. I think, I know we played it. So it was like the first thing that went on before the bands. Yeah, we, we sat, we it. sat on the floor and yeah. handed popcorn. And yeah. I remember like, all right, holy shit, what is this going to be? And we're watching a movie. And we're like, it was kind of like crazy because it was so cold. And we yes. drove, and then we're in that fucking line, and you had to have cash, and we're freezing. And we get in, and we're like, all right, this is so awesome. And Shark Attack was going to open. And instead, we're sitting on the floor eating popcorn. Yes. And I just remember it's like, holy shit, they're going to put out a, you know, like a 10-yard fight movie. But I never seen the VHS. I was just there on the floor watching it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, I think we premiered it there. Um, and I don't know if we had it for sale there. I think maybe we did a pre-order for it because uh, I think it was running a little bit late. Um, but yeah, so we, you know, we we licensed some things from from Equal Vision, and then we had some bands. You know, I think we did the, the Hope Conspiracy Seven Inch, but they were already starting to work with with Equal Vision as well. So you guys put out a VHS. <laughs> we did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, like think about all the cool shit. Like again, it went back to 
the things that just blow your mind. Like you went from a sticker, a bumper sticker, I love ska, straight edge, your first seven inch. And at some point you're doing a VHS for one of your friends' bands. It's a, it's a surreal thing. So well, I, I, I feel lucky that we, we were able to have, I mean, Bridge Nine was rooted in mail order. You know, we wrote letters um, back then. You know, like it, there was a lot of things that were, it was, we, Bridge Nine existed before having a website and any sort of everything was, you know, either writing letters or call, phone, you know, phone calls or um, doing strictly mail order. I, I feel like we were able to be a part of a time that is gone. And um, a lot of the, you know, a lot of labels now, just, they, they couldn't, they couldn't even imagine it. As we get into the mid and late 2000s, there's so many bands, but at the same time, it was also like a lull as far as like the giant size bands have heart had their window. Ceremony was coming up. Blacklist, it was coming up. Yet Bridge Nine, again, you're still on top of the hill and you're releasing stuff with Agnostic Front. You're doing the H2O stuff and you, and you did a Newfound Glory. Were these opportunities stuff you sought out or was it just constantly just the flow because of the size of the label and because of your networking? So we, we started working with, or our, my, my connection with, with Roger from Agnostic Front was in the, I think it was 2005. Um, we started working with Death Board Dishonor and that first Friends Family Forever EP came out in 2005, I believe it was. And I had sent the CD to Anno Cromag in, uh, in Holland. And he was working for, you know, yeah. Ard, Ardshock, like, you know, and, and, but like, yeah, like he, he had connections uh, that were all over Europe in the hardcore scene, but I would send him uh, all of our new releases and he would review them in magazines and, um, and we would take out little ads in, in, you know, he had like kind of these hardcore rate ads for this magazine that was kind of the big, it was like the alternative, it was like the revolver or alternative press in Europe. And terror had, uh, I think Terror had just dropped off or had to drop off the Agnostic Front One Voice Tour um, or another voice tour in, in Europe. And they needed somebody on like a, a week's notice that was able to take their place. And he had been listening to this Friends Family Forever CD and loved it and reached out to me and said, hey, do you think Death for Dishonor could come over and, and take Terror's spot? And I mean, at the time they had maybe done a week of shows, you know, they were more of a local band. They hadn't really done a lot. This record really helped put them on the map. And, and Roger reached out because the Bridge Nine board, uh, RIP at the time was, was a big deal. And like, you know, a lot of people read it. And, and so he was aware of the, I guess the promotional value of, of Bridge Nine being able to push a band like Death Lord Sonor for this tour. And so they ended up taking Death Boy Sonor in fall, I think it was fall of 2005. And what went from a band having never really done more than a week or so of shows, they ended up doing six weeks in Europe and they got really tight with AF. And as that European tour was wrapping up, the American leg, which was another six weeks, bands on that tour uh, ended up dropping off. So they just ended up touring for, I think it was like, what was that? Three months straight with Agnostic Front. And through that connection, I, you know, started to have a little, you know, uh, uh, correspondence with Roger. And in the same way I had 
reached out to sick of it all and, and asked about doing a, a single, you know, I, I reached out to Roger and I said, you know, agnostic front is like obviously this huge influential hardcore band, but they were on a metal label in that was mainly in Europe. So I said, you know, let bridge nine do a seven inch before your next album and we'll help kind of bridge the gap between the hardcore fans and, and what you're doing with the new album to kind of help line up hardcore kids. And he loved the idea. So in 2007, we did, you know, the first seven inch with AF before the album they had coming out at the time. Um, and that was cool. I mean, that was awesome for me because I was able to release a record, you know, a single with Agnostic Front, which I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Um, we were really connected with hardcore fans at the time. So we were able to kind of help build awareness for AF's new record. And we've done it ever since. I mean, we've done, I think, four of these singles over the years um, before every album. And shortly after I said, hey, you know, it's, I think it was at the time, the 25th anniversary of United Blood was coming up. Do you think there's uh, any chance that we could help reissue it for you? And we talked about it a little bit, but it didn't really go anywhere. And then the following spring, Roger reached out to me and said, Hey, it's been 25 years since victim of pain came out. You want to do, do you want to do the, the, the reissue for it? And I was like, fuck yeah, holy shit. So we ended up doing their 25th anniversary release of that. And then also reissued United blood record that same year. What is honor thing was, it's like one of those moments where like, again, another one of these goon bands, but they were Boston and you took a shot on them and it was just like luck for them guys to have that. But it was also cool because people were getting me like, all right, see, you know, Bridge Nine cares because you had done Ramallah, you had done some stuff, but like Deadpool Dishonor was definitely one of like the hardest things you guys had put out. And then right after that, you're doing Ceremony, which is like the craziest other thing. It's cool to see the variety and just the way that you were open-minded and you weren't trying to curate a sound. Because I think some labels get bogged down to, is it really our sound? Is it really going to work for us? And yeah. I, I think I think the message board played into that because you saw the value and how many people in hardcore were interacting with that thing. Well, the, the hard part, if you're, uh, there's a lot of small labels that curate a specific sound, as you said, um, but that's hard to do over a long period of time, right? Because sounds do change, um, bands break up. A, a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, it's funny, our connection to, Fenway Park and baseball through vending. Um, I've come to realize that a label is a lot like a baseball team. And, you know, like if you're a baseball team and you need a pitcher, you only have whoever's available, right? There's, you know, whoever's a free agent or whoever's coming up through the minor league system, like, but it's, you can't just make a pitcher. You have to find someone that's, that exists at that time. And, and that's the same truth for bands and, you know, finding whatever band kind of, you know, is a good reflection of the values of the label or, or the sound. I mean, for a lot of years, we would, we would even when it wasn't justified, we would have people try and pigeonhole us as like Nike dunks hardcore, you know, or like, you know, straight edge hardcore or like something very specific. And the reality was, you know, we were working with bands from very early on that had very different sounds, but from somebody outside on the peripheral is easy for them to just kind of try and pigeonhole us as like this kind of specific hardcore label. But I was open to different stuff. And, and, you know, as long as, and I joked at one point that you had to be a fan of the bad brains to, to work with bridge nine, 
you know, is if I can connect with you on, on something like that, then it doesn't matter if you don't sound like the other five releases that we had that year, you know, as long as, as we can connect on some level, that was cool. If you see the, the transition, I mean, you were putting out stuff like Roner, you're still touching on newfound glory, but then you're also putting out like a beyond polar bear club. I, when did you get into um, some of the crazier stuff that like uh, verse and all that was just, was that again, back to the first person thing where you were knowing these bands or were you, was it your message board and, and the bands? Like how, how did, how did you start getting your next A&R bands in, so to speak? Well, so sound wise, things started to change a little bit around 2007. Yeah. Um, I think I realized, you know, I was getting older bands that I was, that I liked were, were, cha- were a little bit different. I mean, I was very narrow minded as a music fan in my teen years, you know, I was like, I only listen to this kind of stuff for it. And then when I started listening more to hardcore, I remember being like, I'm never listening to metal again. I'm only listening to hardcore. And I missed out on a lot of cool bands probably in those years because I was so focused on just only trying to be in one thing. And as I got older, my taste started to change a little bit and not change, but expand a little bit. And I mean, I remember um, saying that, look, I want to put out a hundred independently released hardcore records. And then after that, I'll just do whatever I want. Because if anyone wants to talk shit on it, it's like, look, I put out a hundred records. You go put out a hundred records and then come tell me that I can't put out a, you know, a whatever particular band I might've been into at the time. Um, so in around 2007, you know, we started working with Crime and Stereo, uh, which was more melodic, but it's hardcore kids, you know, that yeah, come up with the hardcore punk scene that were, that's, their sound was a little bit different and, and a little bit more melodic, but it, but it was still rooted in, in what I thought was cool um, and something that was familiar to me. Um, in 2008, that was a, a big year because it was, you know, the release of H2O's album, you know, because in, in 2007, when we signed them, they were still touring and still doing stuff pretty regularly but their last record, I think, had, had come out seven years earlier, and it was on a major label, and it was a more polished sound. Um, I was a fan of H2O prior to starting the label, so for me, it was a very cool opportunity to, to have grown the label to be in a position where I could work with a band like H2O and ultimately release their kind of comeback record with nothing to prove. Um, but when we started working with with that release, the Nothing to Prove album, it was produced by Chad Gilbert from Newfound Glory. And I had met Chad three years earlier when I was in Australia with, uh, with Champion. So Champion was doing an Australian tour. I think it was their first uh, tour there. And Newfound Glory showed up at the show because their tour was starting the next day. And they had heard that there was an American hardcore band playing in, in the city that they were in. So they just came to check it out and hang out, which you know, was very cool of them. And we ended up just talking and I ended up corresponding with, with Chad because they had, during their last record or the, whatever record that had come out before that, they had recorded the ISHC International Superheroes of Hardcore, you know, album. And he had asked me if, if that's something, if that was something that Bridge Nine would be interested in releasing. And I think in 2005, at the time, I think I was a little 
a little too serious and I, I didn't want to release something that was kind of like tongue in cheek. Um, so that just sat on the back burner, you know, that while, while they continued to do stuff and they ended up, I think coming out of contract with the major label that they were in, um, right around the time we were talking to H2O and Chad was producing the record. So we had the opportunity, I had the opportunity to, to release something with Newfound Glory the month after H2O. So 2008 was just a killer year. I think it was like April was H2O, May I think was Newfound Glory and the, the International Superheroes kind of double disc. And that opened up just, just a huge number of people that were Newfound Glory fans that just kind of funneled right into hardcore and punk through Bridge Nine. Um, you know, our, our mail order numbers quadrupled, like our best month quadrupled when we worked with We Found Glory and it didn't go down for five years, literally wow. just this huge wave. And they, you know, we thankfully had a strong, really strong release schedule that summer. After New Found Glory, we had, I think it was, it might've been Have Heart uh, with the thing, uh, with Songs from the Sun. And then we had verse and then we had ceremony. And so we just had like every month was just something that was, was hitting really big. And a lot of these newfound glory fans stayed for all of those records and, and just became, you know, became fans. No, I, I definitely, you could see it. And I mean, at that time we were booking a lot of these shows and you can see this shift in some of the people that were at the shows. And there was like the, uh, the not so nice term girlfriend hardcore going around where it was like, uh, you know, defeater crime and stereo, the, the bands that were playing melodic, but you know, if you're watching their bands and you're seeing their shows, the sing-alongs are there, the stage, uh, the stage diving's there. And I mean, you could see it from a performance level into the kind of kids, like they weren't only into their thing. They were, ex they were very receptive and they were immersing themselves, and we see it now again. What was the number one, another one hundred release? What was that? Do you know off the top? Of we had, we actually never did it um, on, on purpose. Just to no. Say, uh, so so I was originally so Bridge Nine Fifty was ultimately came out a few years ago, thirteen years late. Like it was a collection called the first nine years, and I was planning that record back in two thousand four. You know, I, I was trying to piece it together. It ultimately became a five, seven inch box set. And there was a 128 page book that was kind of half story, half scrapbook of just stuff from all the bands during those years. And I, think I might have actually, when did that come out? Did that come out like two, two, three, four years ago? Yeah, about three years ago. I think it was. I, I, I actually ordered that on mail order, dude. I have that. Yeah, I yeah. have that. Okay. Now it makes sense. But that was number 50. So what's going to be 100? You're just not going to do one? I, I, at this point, I don't know if it's, if, <laughs> you know, so it, it, at the time it was going to be every 50th release was going to have some collection that would kind of like compile what had happened in the previous 49. And it just took so long to get that, that first one out. I don't ever want to do it again. So there's a couple holes in our discography. Um, hundred being one of them, unfortunately. So at this stage, you've got releases from so many different things. And then you're, you're starting to go into the deeper catalog where you're working with uh, underdog DYS, 
and you're still reaching out in the other directions. Did you, um, again, as your label is continuing growing, were you still seeking these things out or were they just coming to you? So those were things that I see that I, that I, I believe I seeked out. Um, I always wanted to have, I mean, starting with Slapshot, I wanted to have both. I wanted to have the new, you know, like up and coming band. I think there's actually three kind of bands that I was trying to work with. There was the brand new band that I was there, you know, their first or second stop. Um, there was the more established band that I'd kind of helped nurture, whether it was like an H2O or at the time, like a ceremony or, you know, a polar bear club or have heart where, you know, we do a couple of albums with them. Um, but then I also wanted to uh, pay respect to bands that I was influenced by and bands that I loved. So, you know, starting, I think with the project X EP, Oh, that's right. You did Project X. Um, yeah. I mean, that was something that had been bootlegged a bunch of times, but it never been officially released. So I wanted to be the label that, you know, was able to release it officially through the band. And, and, and um, we did that with, you know, Project X. I did it with, with Underdog. I did it with Agnostic Front, Antidote. I mean, there was a bunch of, a bunch of bands, you know, whether it's Slapshot that I was uh, a fan of and, and wanted to have the opportunity to, you know, connect these bands with the new band, you know, the new, like the, the younger kids, you know, cause in a lot of ways, I mean, it's funny, Slapshot was the older hardcore band 20 years ago, you know, and they're still crushing it. Um, you know, all these years later, I mean, they're, they're, they're celebrating their 35th anniversary as a band. Um, but for me, I always wanted to, to, make sure that these bands continue to be vital and that by, by releasing, you know, these reissues or collections, that was, that was how I was able to do it. One of the things at that time, because we're talking about now we're getting to like around like 2010 was that the heavier stuff started coming back into play. And I noticed like on the bridge nine boards, there was like division between the people. Like you had an 18 year old that had the access to Wikipedia. So their our opinion was, if it's not alone in a crowd, it sucks. And then you had the Polar Blair Club, Newfound Glory was only in the, as you can see, the division spreading. And yet you guys had feet in everything. Like, you know, you started working with, eventually you'd work with Expire. I mean, I think even later on, you did some heavier stuff with like Alpha Omega. I remember we talked on the phone about Jesus Peace, Malice in the Palace. Yep. And uh, you did my boy Bob's band, <laughs> Mother Mercy. Yep. Were, were you adverse while you were working with some of the more melodic popular stuff to start touching into the heavy stuff? Or did you just look at like anything else? Like, well, this is the next wave. It, it wasn't so much like a calculated, like, you know, it, it, is this the next wave? It was, it was more just like, you know, stuff that I was into. And so, you know, with bridge nine, not having had to answer to anyone for as many years as we've been a label, you know, I didn't have uh, bank loans that I had to pay back. I didn't have investors. You know, I didn't have anyone that, that like, basically, I think there was a lot of labels that kind of had to follow the money or, or follow what was popular. And that, I never had to do that. So I'm very thankful in a lot of respects that Bridge Nine has been able to remain independent um, for as long as we have. So it, for me, it was just like, you know, this is something that I like. I mean, you know, I remember when I signed bands like either, you know, Lemuria or um, 
you know, Candy Hearts. I mean, one of my favorite bands is the Cardigans. So, you know, to have something that was a little popular, you know, with, uh, you know, with a, a female vocalist, I mean, that was to some kids that might have seemed like blasphemy or out, out of left field. But for me, that was just something that that I, I had come up on. I know you had foundation when I mean, for me, I had seen foundation at a United blood and I saw 30 kids wearing Atlanta hardcore shirts and yeah. had that like, Holy shit moment. The same way I had the Holy shit moment for have heart also for ceremony at the first couple of this is hardcores and at the church shows, it seems like you were still able to be the band, uh, be the band's uh, choice at that time with so many different uh, irons in a fire. But I want to step away from the label for a second and ask you, when did, when did Sully's brand take a, another piece of your business pie and your time? Like when did you start actually formalizing Sully's brand? I don't, I don't know where that is in this timeline we're talking on. Okay. Well, so for people listening that, that aren't familiar with it, Sully's brand is my like sports company that started, um, in the streets around Fenway Park, selling bumper stickers out of backpacks back in 2000. And then in 2002, one of the main t-shirt, the 21ers that I had mentioned, they, they quit, they gave up, they, they didn't want to do it anymore. They so, didn't like money? <laughs> they, well, it, it, was, it was not easy to, I mean, the money was there, but it was tough because they were competing with a bunch of, you know, of, of all my friends basically. And it was a lot of, I mean, it was, you know, street level uh, vending. So there was, you know, fights over things. There was street beef. There was, you know, uh, pressure on street corners to deal with. It, it was, you know, a little wild west back then and it wasn't for everybody. And, and so they had done it for a few years and seen their, t their profits get cut in half because they were selling t-shirts for 20 bucks. And then these new guys came in and started selling for 10 wow. and it was a better, it was a better shirt. And, and they had to compete with that. So they had to drop their prices down from 20 to 10. And their shirt was like four colors on a blue shirt. So like their, their margins were smaller and it just, it was harder to earn money. And, and I mean, this was, you know, in 2002, 2003, Red Sox fans wanted to fight you because they, they were so pissed at watching the Red Sox lose. So, you know, this was, you know, 85 years without a, uh, championship at the time. So I, I didn't blame them for, for just not wanting to do it anymore. But in 2003, when they didn't come back, I started making t-shirts um, and, and, and not instead of just doing stickers and pins and patches, I started making t-shirts. And so to, um, to kind of make that into its own company, I started Sully's. Yeah, I think it was, I registered the name in maybe 2003. Um, and every dollar that I earned selling stuff to, to baseball fans back then went into Bridge Nine from probably 2000 to maybe 2006 or so. Um, but around the mid you know, mid 2000s was when I realized, all right, Sully's is becoming its own company, and it just be, kind of became Bridge Nine's kind of sister company, and has just been side by side with us ever since. And you're able to balance this with uh, the minimal staff that you have? Yeah, so we, Bridge Nine has a couple people that work at Bridge Nine, and then Sully's has a couple people that work at Sully's. We're in the same office, um, but it's literally split down the middle. One side is all music, the other side is all, you know, kind of sports stuff. 
on a completely like professional business level, do you feel like you have a bridge nine way of handling bridge nine stuff or Sully's or are you still Chris at the helm of both? Like, do you have to change hats in how you deal with things or is the business and the uh, relationships very, very similar in how you handle things for, uh, for Sully's? So it's, there was a lot of crossover. I mean, like, you know, I mentioned Newberry Comics being one of our earliest distributors, you know, of records through consignment sales. Um, they sold our records early on and then they were one of our first retailers for Sully's. You know, they, they sold all of our sports stuff for, for years and years. Um, I, I still am 100% hands-on with both companies and, you know, they're both in the same space. So I just bounce back and forth. For better or for worse, I don't carve out my time. It's not like mornings are at Bridge Nine and afternoons at Sully's. I just literally go back and forth depending on whatever the needs are of the day. Um, but you know, it's it's uh, yeah, every day just bouncing between the two companies. At what point in your being the record label head and A and R are you dealing not with a band direct, but you're starting to talk to managers? And these like intermediaries, when did that start really taking place in, in what you do with bridge nine? That was probably late two thousands. You know, we, we started, you know, seeing more bands that had managers, but honestly, for the most part that, that, that hasn't been the rule, you know, I mean, you know, one of the things that I always really appreciated by working with, with bands at a time that were, that were much more established, whether it's agnostic front or, uh, H2O, there were no managers. Um, so all of my dealings were with the band directly. And I feel like, I mean, these are bands that I still work with. You know, I've released a dozen different, mostly fan releases for Agnostic Front, you know, whether it's singles or reissues or, you know, like the live at CBGB, stuff like that. Um, but with like H2O, I mean, we've, we've worked with them 13 years. I mean, uh, longer than half the label's life has been working with them and, 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 and they've been, you know, Toby likes to talk about how they're out of contracts, but we're still working together. Um, just because, you know, you, you get that kind of synergy. Um, and there's with them, you know, it's, it's just, we deal direct. One of the coolest things about bridge nine <laughs> through all this is that you still have time for these. I don't know if they're just one offs, but you're still, you're still touching on bands like Todd Pollock's test of time. You're doing stuff with uh, Luis in LA with uh, Alpha Omega, and and you still manage to I mean um, to touch on these like one off maybe or just like two records. Are you uh, you're a father at that time yet or no? Yeah, so my my daughter was born in 2011. You're a father. You're still juggling this, but you're managed to serve not only the interest of hey, if I sign this pop band, we're gonna have more mail order, but you're still doing the small fucking street hardcore band as they're coming up. And is that where you started working with like the X buyers, the backtracks, like the same thing, like as they're coming up, you, you were interacting with them. So like with backtrack, they had already released an album on Reaper. Um, and, you know, I was psyched on that record and it was, you know, I think at that time we were in a position where a lot of the newer bands were working with somebody like bridge nine did with American nightmare, you know, or, or the hope conspiracy or, you know, we, there was like one step before us and then they would come to, to us for their, like their second or third LP, but we'd still, we'd still put out new stuff with new bands. I mean, it just depended on what was out at that time or what was coming up. 
do you feel at that stage you were just not trying to step on toes or is it like let the band grow before you would take on something like a expire or a backtrack? Um, I mean, I, I probably would have worked with a band like backtrack from the, from the get go, but you know, it's just one of those things where they weren't maybe necessarily on my radar before they signed with Reaper. So, you know, we would, we would, a band would, you know, a, band, a label like Reaper would, would help elevate, you know, uh, this band to kind of the next level. And then at that point, they were more on our radar and, and things that I was able to do with Bridge Nine would continue to help that band kind of build even higher. I can remember specifically, I had two friends be like, do we have a record coming out of Bridge Nine? It's like, Rude Awakening and my boys and boys sets fire. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. okay, <laughs> this is where Bridge Nine is going now. At that era, were you just completely free to just like release what you saw coming in that you enjoyed? Or did you have just, it was again, like you're talking about like an organic process where through relationships you had releases coming to you. Yeah. I mean, we, so like I said, with, we were never beholden to uh, anyone in terms of what we were putting out. So I had a lot of flexibility and it, it just really, it depended on, it was, it really was all relationships. It's all, you know, I've met this band or this person in this band through either a tour I was on or through bands that I'm currently working with. Um, there was, I mean, unfortunately for bands that are, are sending in demos, uh, there's only been, I think, maybe two bands that we've ever worked with that were from an unsolicited demo. You know, it's, it's almost always somebody that, or, or, or there, it's, there's a relationship there. Um, and that's because as an independent label, we have very, you know, for the most part, limited resources. So we have to put money into bands that we, that we know, that we, uh, that we respect, that we see potential in. And, you know, it's, it's usually people that you have some sort of relationship with. You brought it up a couple of times about being an independent label. Has there ever been a time where a larger entity would come and try to make you bigger than that or is that how always you've always stayed the course like a solitary independent operator yeah we've i mean we've always stayed the course we've, we've never nobody's ever offered to buy us i mean i think there was some you know rumors and rumbling rumblings from some places that were interested in what bridge now was doing but nobody made us any offers and and not that i would ever entertain them i mean i i got bridge nine tattooed as a rocker across my stomach in 99 when I had four records out and I was like, this is what I want to do. And I, I could never, I mean, I, I've for better, or for worse, been my own boss and, and, and done my own thing with, with between bridge nine and Sully's for, you know, bridge nine is 25 this year and Sully's is 20. So um, I've never been interested in having somebody else dictate what I, what I could or couldn't do. So, you know, just keep going. Just from the last two hours of talking to you, I mean, obviously you have the background in a creative design meant with the punk rock street art of, hey, I'll get this out one way or the other. But you have this entrepreneurial drive that'll make you, I mean, you, you have to be working something like 10 hour days minimum sometimes or is oh, it crazier? Easy. Yeah. And how do you balance that mentally? Are you doing something? Like, how do you, how do you, how do you not fall apart with the kind of release schedule 
the day-to-day running of the label, having employees and Sully's brand and being a father? What are you doing to mentally keep yourself? Because obviously, I mean, it's a hard job. How are you doing that? It's, it is a really hard job. And I can't say I've always done it well, but I've always done it, you know, as faithfully as I could. Um, obviously a big, um, I think a, a, a big change was when my daughter was born. Um, you know, I now all of a sudden had to stop and I, I hadn't stopped for, for years. I mean, I, I remember, uh, being, you know, I remember when I was sharing an office with death wish, they would roll in around nine in the morning. Um, and I remember being like, I'm going to, I was going in at seven in the morning in the office every day at seven o'clock. And it was because of the time, um, my girlfriend and I shared a car and she worked in Boston. So I would drive her to the train at 6:45, and then I would just go to the office. And I think I did the math at the time that I had worked an extra year, I think, uh, over death wish, um, <laughs> at the time, because I was working, you know, two hours extra every day, uh, over, I think the four years we were there, um, together sharing an office. And I, I, you know, I just, if you just find the time and, and the energy and the effort to, to make it all happen. But when my daughter was born, it was really for the first time I was like, Oh wait, I have to stop. And I can't always be at the office, you know, um, for the, for the first few years that she, you know, from the first few years, I would, for the first time, come back and, and you know, have dinner um, and help put her to bed uh, and kind of take care of her, you know, in, you know, from that, like maybe six o'clock to eight o'clock, nine o'clock uh, window. And then I would just go back to the office um, and work till midnight or one uh, because I had to make up that time and I had to, you know, keep things moving. Um, but I've found ways to balance it. Thankfully, I mean, I value few things more than the time that I have with my daughter. You know, she's nine now and we've got an amazing relationship. Um, but it's uh, just find, trying to find ways to, to, to make that all work. One of the words that would come to mind would be obsessive. And it's not a negative. It's actually like a drive. Would you say that you were obsessed with continuing to do the job that you started for yourself or do you feel like you owed people something to continue it on and what stopped you from just being like other labels where they start taking in crazy overhead and hiring people to do the things that you used to take on firsthand so i mean we we were i mean i was on that path for a while you know and in 2008 we were taking out full, you know, two page spreads and alternative press. I had six or seven employees, um, you know, 20 records coming out, you know, each year between new albums and, and repressing albums. It, I mean, it was just, it was a pace that I, I couldn't deal with today. Um, and now bridge nine is, is trying to kind of find, you know, after 25 years, I'm trying to find that balance where, I can continue to keep doing this. I mean, I always want to keep, I don't ever want to be a catalog label. You know, I don't want to just have documented a specific time and just keep repressing and reissuing that, you know, like I always want to find something new and vital. Um, But it's just not going to be at the same pace that it always was. We're at 25 years. 
you and I had a conversation at this hardcore where we were talking about setting up a celebration, a couple of days of bands. COVID yeah. kind of put a complete tsunami wave over all that. And then adding insult to injury, you're going through having to move your entire office again. How are you, how are you balancing all this and what are you doing to kind of not just say, fuck this? So the, this year has obviously been tough for a lot of people. Um, as a business, it's been difficult, but I'm very thankful that I've been able to figure out ways to make it work. There's a lot of businesses right now that are just this, most of this year have been shit out of luck. They have no way of earning money and a lot of you know, venues, a lot of bars, a lot of, you know, uh, community spaces are, are closing. And so I'm thankful that I've been able to keep things moving, but it's been, it's been a very tough year. You know, I've, I've, you know, had to let a lot of people go furlough employees, you know, a few of them have come back, but we have, I mean, I had to wear so many hats for, from March, April, May, whether I was packing every single order or dealing with all the marketing efforts, um, trying to pivot and come up with new products. I mean, I, I was, you know, designing bandanas and, and neck gaiters and face masks, things that I'd never sourced before, but I had to figure out where to get them made and, you know, how to des- you know, design them and, 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 and get them ordered. Um, it's, it's been a, a roller coaster year. And so unfortunately we did find out uh, a few months ago um, that the building we've been in for 13 years is going on the market. The guy that owns it is, I believe in his seventies is, probably spooked by COVID and doesn't, you know, just wants to cash out and not that I blame the guy, but you know, it, it's, they basically came to us and said uh, a realtor that, that he was working with said, they're going to sell the building. Do you want to buy it? Do you want to buy your floor? I think they, I think they want a condo each floor. There's three floors. And they had some ridiculous uh, asking price. And we said, that's not, no, it's not possible. We're, I mean, we're barely, you know, we're, we're hanging on, but, this is not the year to ask us to try and buy a building. Um, so we just realized we're either somebody's going to buy the space and bump us out, or they did say that they were going to jack the rent up if we didn't buy our space because, you know, we've been here for 13 years. So our rent is below market value. So they need to raise it up so that it's maybe attractive to someone who might buy it as an investment. So, we just uh, said we, we got to figure out how we're going to move through all this. And last month in, in July, we, 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 for the first time, let people know that we were potentially going to be moving and we came up with a couple different ways that people would help. And, and the response has been really positive. Um, it's just been a matter of trying to, I mean, I've spent today just cleaning and organizing, you know, thing we've been here for 13 years. So we've kind of, worked our way into every nook and cranny in this building. And so now I've just had to, to go through and um, box things up, throw things out. I mean, this, the amount of things that have been recycled, uh, just trying to, to make it so that when we do move, um, it will be as painless as possible. Cause I mean, the last time was in 2007 and it sucked. So. One of the things that has to come to mind is the, fact that 
no one planned COVID. And did you have releases that you had a stave off for right now? Or were yep. you like, how does that balance out with the move? Like, how are you dealing with all that? So we had, uh, you know, a lighter release schedule this year than previous years, but we do have, I mean, Warren Women had a new album that was supposed to come out earlier this year. They had a support slot on the Bad Religion Alkaline Trio tour, which was going to be a really cool opportunity for them. Obviously that all went away. Uh, the record is still coming out this year, but it won't be until end of October, beginning of November at this point. Um, we had that single or that, you know, the four song EP with Buried Alive that just came out this past week that would have come out months ago, but we had to kind of bump it when, I mean, all the record stores were closed for months. We did, kind of didn't really know what was going on. So we said, all right, let's just push things back a little bit. So it's messed with our release schedule. It's messed with cash flow. It's trying to kind of balance things, but you know, now, for better or for worse, we've gotten through it. You immediately resorted back to what you've already started this whole label with. You had to find sources. <laughs> you had to find the sources and go back to printing. It's always interesting to me to talk to somebody at your level because you've been working at this for 25 years and you don't have all the answers. Where do you find, where did you go to like, look up how to print? Like, did you just ask somebody or did you have to do the internet? Like it's, I'm always mind when I'm always mind blown when someone takes the extra and like, Hey, find me someone. Like I could tell you're the person that actually looked and found the gator, the face mask. Like, how did you do all that? Yeah. So, you know, first off, it's trying to figure out what exactly it is that, that we need, that we can pivot to. Right. I mean, you know, if, if nobody's buying t-shirts, what, what else can we use our intellectual property for, that will make people be interested in buying something. Bridge nine, it wasn't the biggest concern because, you know, if this had happened 15 years ago, we would have been fucked and all labels would have been fucked. But now that a lot of music is streaming and digital, um, there was actually a bump in some places. We lost a lot of opportunities with direct record stores, but in 2020, our, our music sales are predominantly digital and streaming. So, you know, stores closing didn't really mess with our ability to pay our bills through COVID. What did get messed with was with Sully's because we, every opportunity to sell was eliminated with the exception of, of online sales. So, you know, we were, we had a tough winter and I was expecting St. Patrick's day. I mean, Sully's being an Irish name and we, we do a lot around St. Patrick's day. Um, to kind of get us back into the black. And then the week before the St. Patrick's Day, actually days before the, the big parade in Boston, we would have vendors go down and sell flags and stuff down at, along the parade route that, that was canceled. And, you know, the opportunities to sell at uh, Bruins and Celtics games, you know, outside of the, the stadiums, those all, you know, went away. Um, Usually April is when we're getting ready to have a presence at Fenway Park. And this would have been our, you know, 21st year, you know, season going out to Fenway Park and, uh, and that all disappeared. So the only way for, for us to make any money was to direct, you know, people to our website. And um, I was actually very lucky. I ended up doing a mystery box, something that we've had a lot of success with at Bridge Nine. I did for Sully's and I said, you know, we'll make a hundred bucks worth of merch for $50. And if you want a hockey box, you can do hockey, basketball, baseball, you know, general Boston, 
uh, mass hole, which I have the trademark for, you know, a bunch of different things. And, and that ended up saving us. You know, we, we crushed it. People wanted something to look forward to and they wanted something that they could uh, get a good value. And if they're stuck in their homes, you know, they, they wanted to like have a surprise. They didn't know what they were going to get. And so from April, May, and June, you know, we kept the lights on doing these mystery boxes, you know, while at the same time trying to innovate new products, you know, sourcing places to make bandanas. I'd, I'd never made a bandana before. I've wanted to, but it'd been on the back burner. I'd never bothered to. And now all of a sudden I was like, oh shit, I got to find a place to make bandanas because people need to cover their faces. I remember seeing a silk flag and it reminded yeah. me I had a Guns N' Roses silk flag and I had a Metallica silk flag. So when I saw Bridge Nine with the silk flag, I was blown away. And to hear you 10 years later, you're still looking for that next thing. It just shows your drive to continue on. And again, having your, you know, you have two feet, one in each uh, companies and how you're using success from one company to other is just evident that you do not stop no matter what's in front of you. Do you feel in the entire time, whether it's 25 or 21 years in either company that you got overly competitive and may have made bad decisions? Or do you feel like you've always kept cool and never let a competitive nature blow your top? So I don't feel like we got overly competitive, but there, there was, you know, there was competition and uh, you know, unfortunately um, relationships that I had with, with people got, you know, co competition, I think on some level got in the way Um you know, like I had mentioned, I, I, I used to be really, really tight with Trey at Deathwish um, in the early 2000s. And then we shared an office for four years. And that on its own is going to, you're stepping on each other's toes, whether it's like literally just leaving boxes on opposite sides of the office or, um, you know, finding that you're both interested in the same bands. Um, you know, now we don't really talk. And it's a bummer. You know, he was a, a close friend back then. Um, you know, Thorpe, uh, that's another label. I mean, that was a, we did the collection, you know, fighting music CD compilations, you know, with them. Um, and then, you know, as Bridge Nine was kind of coming up in the mid 2000s, you know, he worked, Andy worked at, at, uh, at Lumberjack. We left Lumberjack in 2004 and went direct with Caroline and Revelation because Lumberjack was switching from Caroline, who I, my job was basically, I was hired to, to work with Caroline and, and to kind of help market records. And when they ended up leaving Caroline, I wanted to stay. And unfortunately at the time, I think, I ended up losing a bunch of bands to Thorpe because Lumberjack gave him a bunch of money to, to poach my bands. And so like, I've never been, tight with him since you know i mean it is what it is um but you know years pass and, and you get over it um and and sometimes not every loss is lost but um you know i'm finding myself now uh in just a different place you know where i i don't feel like i have anything to prove like i've been very fortunate to have worked with as many exciting bands as i have and now i'm just trying to find that balance where I can keep doing that, keep working with, with new and upcoming bands, keep, you know, maybe coming up with fun projects with established bands that I really like and respect. Um, and it, it's not about competition. It's, it's, I think we've kind of carved out our, our own, you know, niche and we just 
hopefully we'll just keep doing what we're doing. I have a couple quick, simple questions, and then we'll wrap mm -hmm. this one up. Have you ever appeared on one of your own records? Um, probably backups, you know, uh, I've certainly done the, the design and, and, and layouts on a lot of records. Um, but yeah, I've never, I don't play any instruments and, you know, the only, the only thing that I've ever sang on was, uh, some Lego hardcore song, you know, that I did. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, another one that really, I, I always am just mind blown. You started out with t-shirts, bumper stickers, and seven inches, and you're releasing books now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, how, can you run through the process and just where you made that transition and added that whole element to your label? So the first book that I released was the Schism Anthology. We collected the, the three issues of what had become Schism Fanzine and released it at the same time as the Project X you know, official reissue. And for me, it was important to uh, continue to, to have that material available. I had, uh, I think maybe one copy of Schism that somebody had photocopied and had been passed along to me, you know, when I was younger, but I had never held a copy of the original fanzine myself. And a lot, very few people had at that point. So for me, I thought, well, if I could track down the original issues and work with ultimately, you know, um, uh, 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 those guys to, to, to take their material that had been made in 1988 and, you know, 87 and 88 and, um, and, and make it available for people in the mid 2000s. Um, that was just a, a project that I wanted to tackle. And it was, I mean, we sold a ton of them. I mean, it was a really cool opportunity to, to, to take these interviews and these photos and, and this coverage of these bands that were so, you know, so important to a lot of people in the early 2000s that were, you know, they were inspired by a lot of these bands. So we were able, I was able to kind of recollect all that stuff and publish it as a book. Uh, I haven't done many books, but the, the biggest one was the triple X fanzine that I did with, with Mike Gitter. I mean, that was his zine from when he was, think 15 or something to, you know, 20 or 16 to 20. And it covered a lot of stuff in the Boston scene from 1983 to 1988. And it was just, I mean, he talked to every single amazing band and much like schism, I had never had a copy of triple X been passed down to me. It was just, it was a zine that I was aware of by name, but I had never read it. So I was able to work, you know, working with him, I was able to uh, just take all the greatest parts of that fanzine and make it available to people now, because a lot of that stuff had been relegated to, you know, milk crates and, and shoe boxes in, and, and the average person had no access to it. So it was uh, in the same way that, you know, trying to work with some bands to reissue their out of print material. It's just a way to just kind of keep it available for the next generation. Now, I definitely see the correlation between some of your releases. I actually thought I forgot that you did the Wrecking Crew. And it's the same mm -hmm. thing. I, I still, when I see something like the Gitter book, I remember ordering it and I got the, the 3X key cap and I was wearing it on job sites. And just coming home and reading that, I, I grew up in an era of zines. And it's yeah. so cool to see 
I have books all around my living room. My, my wife has them scattered and it's either New York hardcore book, the getter book. It's great to still be able to pick up and touch this part of hardcore history. And without you being an interested in that, it would have been gone. And uh, I collect a lot of the, um, I have Tesco's book from his old zine, which is like yep. mammoth thick. And it's such an important thing to archive these first and second generations of hardcore that didn't benefit from such a uh, popular and like even technologically advanced scene. So everything was stapled together. Like, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with change zine from Connecticut. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. So I like, had all the early issues. Yeah. Yeah. So Not like less. one, yeah. So one issue is like a couple thick and then there's one that's like massive thick yep. and at a, at a show or in tw- uh, 10 years ago, I just started saying like, I was doing exactly what you said, which is why I'm bringing it up. I had milk crates and just bins of zines and I just wanted everyone else to have them. Cause I'm like, they're never going to be read by me again. I, I, I lived reading zines. So it's yeah. so cool to hear that you're, you're interested in that. Is there anything else in that vein that you would take on or you thought of taking on, or is it just kind of come to you as it, as it is? So I, I can't say that I will tackle a zine anthology like, I did with triple X anytime soon. Cause that took five years. I mean, I, I actually talked to Gitter about the possibility of doing it back in, I don't know, 2005 or 2006. And at the time I had been threatened with a lawsuit by a photographer that had had some of their photos from schism be reprinted in our book. And it was, it was just a huge headache. And at the time the prospect of working on, triple X was just too much because there was so many photos and there was so much cool content um, that it ended up taking another, I think seven years before we reconnected and said, Hey, let's try and do this now. And one of my favorite stories about the triple X book was, you know, not only was I compiling a lot of these original fanzines that, that Gitter had written as a teenager. And, you know, the first few issues were just photocopied and stapled. And then, he moved to like an offset printed kind of heavier paper. And then it went to newsprint, you know, like you can kind of see the evolution of the fanzine um, as it got bigger and had larger circulation. But I was able to work with, you know, tracking down uh, photographs from photographers that would have otherwise been lost to time. I mean, some of the best photographs from the triple X book were from a woman named Claire Sutherland, who I had only known of by name from photos that had been contributed to triple X by Al Quint, who did suburban voice fanzine. When I was getting in, when I was 90% done with triple X, I needed to fill some more holes with photos. And Al, who, you know, he lives down the street from my office had very graciously offered to contribute some of the photos from his archive of bands from the same era. And so he gave me some photos and said, yeah, this was, you know, I think Claire's name was on the back of it. And he didn't know anything about her, where she had ended up. Um, the, you know, the photos were great, but um, I wanted to know if there was more out there. So I ended up finding, I think I, I wasn't able to find anything about her anywhere. I found her name, um, uh, unfortunately it was in the, uh, her father's obituary uh, online and saw that she had a brother that lived locally. So I, I reached out to him through Facebook and, you know, I said, Hey, uh, is your sister Claire? And do you, do, you know, do you know how to contact her? Does she still have uh, her photos? Does she still do photography? And she had been an art student in the, you know, in college, I think in high school. 
and um, had taken a bunch of photos of bands in 82 and 83 in Boston. And then I think hung up her camera back then. And he had inherited all of her photos. So they were just literally in a shoebox that uh, he had saved from his father's house after his father passed away. He had just taken the shoebox and brought it to his basement. And I was able to go through and bring my, my scanner and laptop and scan all these amazing photos. Like, you know, I, I ended up replacing full page photos with her photos that I had already kind of had set because her minor threat photo was perfect. Her SSD control photos were just like better than anything I had already had. And these were things that otherwise would have been locked up in a basement somewhere. Man, that's amazing that you tracked her down. One of the things that is just so interesting is like you're wearing a shirt as we're talking to you. It says, believe in Boston. You managed to be synonymous in your hometown with obviously your Bostonian and, and New Englander. So you're ubiquitous and synonymous with this amazing sports franchises. And you're also ubiquitous and, and synonymous with Boston hardcore and hardcore and gender through bridge nine. Where do you think out, what do you think you got your, your highest accolade or achievement at? Was it the label or was it the t-shirts and being in the press for Boston and all that? Um, it's been a little bit of both, right? I mean, we, there was a lot of coverage of Bridge Nine in the, in the early, mid-2000s. I can't say there's been a lot locally in Boston recently, um, but I have had the opportunity to do a lot of really cool things with Sully's, whether it's collaborating with players, you know, helping their charities. Um, you know, we just did a, a remixed version of the Joe Kelly Fight Club t-shirt for uh, Joe Kelly's on the Dodgers. Um, we originally made that shirt back in 2018 after he had uh, basically, you know, kind of started a, a bench clearing brawl with the Yankees, you know, kind of reigniting the rivalry with, you know, between the Red Sox and the Yankees. So as a response that like literally the next morning, I made a Joe Kelly Fight Club shirt and just kind of for the fun of it, we'd actually done a few different Fight Club shirts in the years prior and it became a huge viral hit. Um, we connected with Joe Kelly and his wife and used it to help raise almost $30,000 for, for their charity, Fighting Human Trafficking. So there was a lot of really cool, good things that came out of it. Um, when Sully started, it was really, it was based in uh, kind of exploiting the rivalry between the Red Sox and the Yankees and other rivalries, whether it was, you know, uh, Celtics and Lakers or, you know, the uh, Canadians and, and the Bruins. Um, and a lot of it was based on negativity, you know, back then, especially with, uh, basketball and, and hockey, we would be selling t-shirts at 10 o'clock, 1030 at night when it was 20 degrees and, you know, the team might've lost. So in order to get someone to stop and buy something and laugh, they usually had to have something kind of offensive. So we would have these kind of, you know, mean spirited rivalry shirts. And that's what we initially started with. In 2004, I registered the trademark for Believe in Boston because I said, you know what, I, I don't want to define a company based on hating the other guy. Like I want to focus on, you know, what works at it about with, with our team and our, you know, our franchises. So I started making kind of more positive shirts and, and Believe in Boston is now uh, just by connecting with different charities raised something like $150,000 locally just for whether it was the one fund, you know, after the Boston marathon bombing 
or for you know charitable shirts that we've used to benefit you know uh, the Jimmy Fund here in Boston um, or the you know different a bunch of different charities. So we have um, I would hope that at some point the legacy of what Sully started out and we started out as kind of a little mean spirited and focusing on rivalries, but it's really been about reinvesting in the community and, and kind of focusing on the, on the good. I think one of the things that is important as people grow is to start getting beyond what we work on and start working for other people. And I mean, obviously as a promoter through hardcore, I have some crazy times where people hit me up and say, Hey, this terrible tragic thing happened. We need to do a benefit show. And the stress on me is to make sure this thing brings the maximum amount of human beings we can get into a room through a rook or crook so we can get the most amount of money so just somebody can get buried. And it it reminds me of the work that we do and how we can benefit other people. So hearing that you turned it into a positive and that you're still working and doing charities is absolutely incredible considering the workload and being a father. I wanted to ask you one last thing and then we'll just kind of wrap this up. What was you think the biggest mistake in the last 25 years that that you made and if you've forgiven yourself with and you've kind of learned from it? So I think one of the obvious things is, you know, not pursuing certain bands Um, as a, you know, with, with bridge nine, I mean, there's been those kind of lightning in a bottle of bands that I've had the really great opportunity to work with. Um, But you don't always recognize the potential of a band when you're presented with the opportunity to work with them. And so there's, I mean, been a bunch of bands that I was just like, you know, either didn't, I didn't actively pursue or I, you know, I, I was like, I'm already working with a band similar that's over here. So I don't really see the need to work with a band over there. And then of course, you know, hindsight's 2020, you know, the band that you passed on ends up being 10 times bigger than the band you were working with. Um, but, you know, overall, I can't complain. I've, I've, I've been, blessed to have worked with as many exciting fun, you know, and and really great and influential bands as as I have. Um, There's a lot of things I would probably want to talk to 19 year old Chris Wren about like how to, you know, things that he should probably do Um, be, you know, hopefully be more organized. Um, Maybe uh, be a little bit smarter about some of the decisions I, I would have made, you know, and, things that I spent. I mean, I, I invested in, in, in put money into bands that I, I could live to be 200 and I'll never see any of that money back. Um, but you know, it, it is what it is. And again, I, I was lucky that I was able to take risks um, that I, it didn't matter, you know, like I, it's not like I had to necessarily pay it back. It just meant that that money didn't go elsewhere, you know, or going to a different band. If that's the worst of the lessons learned, I think you got off easy and it sounds like you corrected things as you moved on. Where do you take bridge nine? Do you, if COVID is something that is mitigatable and public events grow again, do you revisit the idea of the festival that you were setting up or is that something that you wait for the 30 now? I, I don't know if I want to wait for the 30. I might do the 25 plus one. Um, you know, I, it's a shame that we're, we're missing out on it. I think there's a lot of great bands that we've worked with over the years that uh, would be really cool to kind of have all come together to, to celebrate uh, a big part of, of their journeys and a big part of their path. And, and uh, I mean, I've, 
it's it, it really is a bummer that that has fallen apart for this year. And, and I, I hope that it will happen at some point in the near future, but I don't, I, who knows where things are going to go, you know, in the meantime, um, I've kind of come to terms with the, the fact that I am, I don't know, I, I, I have more to offer than just doing what I'm doing. Um, like I, I can do more than just keep putting out records and just keep making t-shirts. So while I'm going to continue to do those things and I, I really enjoy the process, um, I'm hoping that I can do more mentoring opportunities or I want to be more of the person that helps other people bring their projects to fruition, you know? And so I'm trying to figure out how can I do more? I mean, we've done that with some internships over the years, um, but I, I want to be able to maybe have more of a hands-on opportunity to, to help people create things. So. It sounds like it's just like paying it forward. And I think, yeah. I mean, I've come to you at a time with this hardcore and we did the live, this hardcore thing. And you're one of these people that is an open source. You don't hide secrets. You don't say, Oh, I can't tell you because you're going to go. It's one of the most incredible aspects to you is that you will pick up the phone and give your time and give your resources as it was given to you from other people. And I think that that's something that in my own podcast that we're doing now, I'm trying to do is, Hey, here's Chris Wren. Here's how we did this. This is how we did bridge nine. This is how we drove. And it's hard, you know, 10 yeah. plus hour days, 25 years straight, two separate businesses, a, a father. This is what it takes to be Chris. And it's important that people understand you didn't just wake up and make a couple internet profiles and you got to where you got, you hustled your ass off. And I just really appreciate your time here. And I really hope that you get the opportunity to kind of invest in the next group of people who will be doing what you just did. So thank you for being, thank you honestly for everything you've done for hardcore, for me as a friend and just in general for not going to the negative side and being like, Oh, you know, this is no good. You've never had that kind of disdainful look on hardcore. And I think that's why you still have so much drive for it. And 25 years later. Well, you know what? Thank you for including me in your inaugural uh, episode and, and like if, if this becomes the first episode like I, it is it is 100 percent the first one nice. and i and i and it sounds funny because i i, I had recorded others but it's got to start off with this it had to start off with you for a lot of joe hardcore reasons and for because i were were able to show people the path of what hardcore can be if you put effort in and you don't stop it well i don't know how to do that and i think that yeah. you personify oh, I don't know how to do that. How do I learn to do that? And the hands-on-ness where you're not getting someone else to do it for you, but you did it. You did everything on your own. And I think that's the most important thing that I want to relate to this new generation is that you can do so many things if you just take this stupid internet that we didn't have and look it up or ask yeah. people with it. It's so incredible that the resources are in your hands and you feel like you're lost. You don't have to be lost. There's so many people... Not many like you, but there are people like you that can easily put someone like you're talking about mentoring in the right direction to achieve these things. And I think it's great that uh, we get to start with you. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you again for including me. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Chris. And uh, we're going to include on the website links because Chris has links up to help Chris bridge, uh, bridge nine with the move 
and links to the brands. And just, this is one of these things where hardcore has a new generation of people that may see things from a more business mentality. And you're talking to a guy who did this for 25 years and he's still in his office. Cause I decided to call him late, <laughs> probably, probably going on almost a, a 12 hour day now to do this. This is a guy who works. This is a guy who lives for this. And this is what hardcore is all about. And I just really appreciate you doing this for me. Happily. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you for taking the time. I know it was a long one. The next couple are definitely going to be close to the same length. But if you sat through and listened to the whole thing, you'll understand why we took the time. On our website, thisishardcorefest.com, you can find links to support Chris and Bridge Nine Records. You can look them up on the internet. They've got social media on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, just as well. We're going to be releasing these weekly. I really appreciate you taking the chance. And for those who stuck through the whole thing, shout outs to MH Chaos for their intro music, Hammer of Chaos. Try not to laugh too hard at my silly robot voice in the very beginning. This has been awesome to try out. 100% of this has been done by me, learning, failing. So if it doesn't sound so great, hey man, it's my first one. I'm trying it. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook as well. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy next week's episode. Take care.